Good morning, everyone from Washington, D.C. Poppy is off this week. I convinced Abby Phillip to come back again the entire week, whether you like it or not. And I personally like it. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. Overnight, for every action, there's a reaction. Russia unleashing airstrikes on the Ukrainian port city of Odessa 24 hours after Ukraine attacked a critical bridge linking the Crimean Peninsula to Russia. The Russian Defense Ministry calling those strikes retaliation. And more than 65 million Americans are under heat alerts today, triple-digit temperature records being shattered across Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. One top climate group says that, quote, heat hell is being felt worldwide. A key hearing in Donald Trump's classified documents case is set for today in Florida, the judge telling prosecutors and defense attorneys to be ready to discuss trial dates. And CNN's Jake Tapper will interview Governor Ron DeSantis this afternoon. It comes as the governor is facing new pressure to shift his 2024 campaign strategy. And your lottery dreams are live for yet another day. There was no winner last night in the Powerball drawings. The jackpot has now reached $1 billion. CNN This Morning starts right now. I gotta admit, I've been struggling with heat hell, but I think it's actually quite it's apt. Pretty cl- it's pretty close to heat hell, especially here in D.C. Yeah, no question about it. And that's exactly where we're gonna to that. start, because it's not just yeah. D.C., it's across the country. Frankly, it's across the world at this point. We begin this morning with a deadly and unrelenting heat wave beating down on Americans across the U.S. Right now, around 65 million people are under heat alerts from Florida to California as Phoenix is expected to reach a record-breaking 19th consecutive day above 110 degrees. Dangerously high triple-digit temperatures have also been scorching Miami and El Paso for weeks, and the streak shows no signs of ending anytime soon. And quote, this heat hell is worldwide. That's according to a top UK-based climate advisory group, noting that dangerous heat waves are spreading around the globe from southern Europe to China. Meantime, more than 3 million people across the Northeast and New England are now under flood watches. Excessive rainfall is being forecast from New Jersey to Maine, where streams are already running high after disastrous flooding events last weekend. And then there is Canada and those wildfires blanketing dozens of U.S. cities with smoke and prompting unhealthy air quality alerts for 50 million Americans. Let's get straight to CNN's Derek Van Dam. With the forecast on all fronts, I mean, I think are the locusts next here, Derek? Uh, what, what stands out to you with all of these extreme weather events that we're seeing? Yeah, you know, we really are living this heat hell in real time. You in D.C., me in Atlanta, we've got both the heat and the smoke. And it seems like no one across the continent of the United States is immune to these climate extremes. I mean, our weather map is so busy, so active. There's the heat alerts. You've got one in Dallas, Atlanta. You've got a air quality alert. And uh, Burlington, Vermont, for instance, you've got a flood watch. So a wide chasm of weather topics to talk about today. This is a live look downtown Atlanta. You can barely make out the buildings, but I want to show you this. This is actually Georgia Tech's football stadium. And I noticed it as I was driving into the headquarters here at CNN Center, uh, just how smoke-filled and hazy the skies are. The, uh, the street lamps and the lights of the stadium, they're actually helping illuminate just how bad 
the smoke actually is. So the smoke actually traveled over 2,000 miles to reach us here in Atlanta. And uh, you know you know that you've been prone to it along the eastern seaboard, but for it to reach us all the way into the southeast is really saying something. The good news is a front will help clear things out by later today, but it kind of just redistributes it across the eastern seaboard. Along with this front comes a band of showers and thunderstorms. That's the last thing we want to hear about across the northeast because that is where we have the potential for more flooding. National Weather Service picking up on that. Flood watches hoisted across northern New England, including some of the hardest hit areas. And then the heat dome. We continue to talk about records being shattered over the western U.S. Look at this triple digit heat. And in Phoenix, well, uh, if you're looking for any kind of relief, Phil and Abby, you got to head to Monday of next week, 114 well, you can cut the sarcasm with a knife here, just like the smoke in the skies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know what 114 degrees means. That's like an unfathomable yeah. temperature, but there 100%. we are. Derek Van Dam, <laughs> thank you very much. All right. And the first hearing in former President Trump's classified documents case is set for today. CNN has learned that the judge in the Florida case told prosecutors and the defense to come ready to talk about the trial's timeline. Prosecutors say that they want it to start in mid-December, but the former president's lawyers are asking to delay even setting a date. CNN's senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance, is here with us. So, Caitlin, the saga continues. What can we expect from this hearing today? Well, this hearing, it's the big debut for Judge Eileen Cannon. We have seen her before in this case. She was the judge uh, that gave Donald Trump what he wanted when he wanted to slow down the Justice Department investigation before he was charged and appoint a special master to get access to some of the classified material. She ended up being in a situation where she really had an egg on her face as a judge. She was overturned at the appeal. Uh, and so now, now that she has this case, it's going to be progressing to trial. We're going to see her for the first time in court respond to everything that's been going on since the indictment. So the Justice Department is saying they want the trial to start in December. And then Trump's team say they don't want to even put a calendar date yet for a trial. That both of those things might not be possible. It might be a situation where Eileen Cannon has to come in and pick a reasonable date for this to go to trial. Even December is a little early, according to a lot of defense lawyers that I've talked to. Uh, but she is going to have to reveal where she feels uh, this case should be, how quickly it should go. And of course, there's that political calendar of next year with Trump running for president. Where will she land? And then, of course, she's a new judge. Yeah. And whenever you have a new judge, you're always watching what is it like for their courtroom management? What's their style? We don't know that much about her. And so to see her manage this case for the first time is really going to be illuminating. And, and Trump's dance card is pretty full with other cases as well. That's true. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating because there's been so much talk about Eileen Cannon, and we haven't yeah. actually heard from her or seen her. Um, there's another issue that I want to ask you about. I'm always fascinated with... Um, the area of your expertise, because one thing always leads to another, whether it's precedent, the, like the, the elements here that can almost spill over into other cases. And we're seeing that in the case of Jack Teixeira. He was uh, the uh, former na or the National Guardsman who was accused of posting a trove of classified documents on Discord. Uh, his legal team actually brought up the former president in a new court filing. What did they say? Yeah, so Jack Teixeira, he's already being held uh, in jail pending trial. That was a decision the judge previously made. But now his lawyers are going to court and say, well, wait a minute, the Justice Department is undermining the position they took here because they're not doing the same thing in other national security cases with very similar charges like the case against Donald Trump. 
and Walt Nada, where the Justice Department came in with them and said, you know, we don't even need to take their passports. We have no belief that they're going to be fleeing. We don't think they need to be held pending trial. To Sarah's lawyers are saying, that's not fair. But defense attorneys do make those sorts of arguments pretty often. And Jack to Sarah, a 21-year-old with a net worth of less than $20,000 uh, and clearly uh, potentially could have additional national security secrets that other foreign adversaries might be interested in. Justice Department's argument with him was he could be recruited, he could be pulled out of the United States, given safe housing somewhere else. Uh, that's a lot different than Donald Trump running for president of the United States. It would be hard for him to slip out. Yeah, he, he's, he's got an interest in uh, sticking <laughs> around. A little longer. Well, Caitlin, thank you very thank much you. for bringing all that to us. Well, developing this morning, Russia retaliates. Ukraine says it shot down a barrage of cruise missiles and drones that Russian forces unleashed on the southern port city of Odessa. CNN team on the ground witnessed Ukrainian air defenses firing up into the sky and a loud explosion that rocked the city. Now, Russia is now confirming the strikes were in retaliation for yesterday's attack on its bridge that occupied Crimea. Another big development this morning. Wagner mercenaries have reappeared nearly a month after staging a rebellion and marching on Moscow. The group's whereabouts have been a mystery, but videos are now emerging that appear to show a large convoy of Wagner fighters heading to a military base in Belarus. And CNN has analyzed satellite images that show them arriving as well. Under a deal with the Kremlin, the mercenaries were given sanctuary in Belarus in exchange for ending their mutiny. Claire Sebastian is tracking all of these big developments for us. So, Claire, let's start first with the airstrikes on Odessa. What do we know about what happened there? Yes, Abby, a key development in the last hour or so, the Russian Ministry of Defense has come out and explicitly called this retaliation. They are saying that the target was a facility near Odessa that manufactured, apparently, what they're calling uncrewed boats. And don't forget, they accused Ukraine of using these very uncrewed boats, essentially maritime drones, to attack the Kerch Bridge on Monday. Russia is also saying that they hit several fuel facilities near Odessa and Mykolaiv, which was supplying the Ukrainian army. Russia is saying that it hit all the targets it intended to hit. Obviously, it's very unclear if that's the case, because Ukraine, on the flip side, its air force is saying that it actually shot down all six cruise missiles that were launched towards Odessa from the Black Sea. It also says it shot down most of the three dozen attack drones uh, that were launched at that region. So, you know, two different versions of events. And we are seeing some damage on the ground in Odessa. That, according to the Ukrainian side, uh, is from falling debris, which continues to be a major threat. As for going forward, I think, look, it's hard to distinguish Russian retaliation from the general course of their aggression. But certainly when there was an attack on the Kerch Bridge back in October, we did see a significant uptick in airstrikes targeting Ukraine's electricity grid. The Kremlin this morning is saying that proposals for retaliation are being worked out. They may not be done here. Claire, to the separate issue that Abby was talking about, this game of where is Waldo's military forces uh, seems to be kind of be over at this point. Uh, obviously, we saw videos and geolocated Wagner mercenaries that appeared after last month's result. But Waldo himself uh, in this construct, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, still has not been seen, at least recently. Do we have any sense of where he may be at this point? 
We don't. There's obviously been a lot of talk about where he is. First, he was said by Lukashenko to be in Belarus, by the, the president of Belarus himself. Uh, then he was said to be in Russia. Then we had the news that he met up with uh, President Putin at the Kremlin. In terms of actual physical evidence, images or videos, we have not seen head or tail uh, of Prigozhin since those images surfaced uh, of him leaving Rostov in Russia after that aborted mutiny. But it is significant that we are seeing these images, these satellite images that we've managed to analyze showing these very large convoys uh, of Wagner fighters arriving at that base in Belarus. It raises questions about whether or not that could signal a future role for that group in Ukraine. So a lot of questions. Claire Sebastian, thank you. And moderate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin fueling speculation about a third party run and catching the attention of both the Biden and the Trump campaigns. Here, I'm not here running for president tonight. I'm not. I'm here trying to basically save the nation. Plus, new reporting from inside the Ron DeSantis campaign. What his donors are saying about today's big interview with CNN's Jake Tapper. Stay with us. I haven't made any decision, nor will I make a decision, until the end of the year. And my reason for that, I've never seen it. A place in the world that basically the next election starts the day after the last election. That was Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat refusing to rule out a third party presidential run. After speaking to a bipartisan group in New Hampshire last night, the West Virginia senator told CNN's Caitlin Collins that Americans deserve another option in 2024. CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports. Senator Joe Manchin openly flirting with the third party presidential bid in New Hampshire. We're here to make sure that the American people have an option. And the option is, can you move the political parties off their respective sides? They've gone too far right and too far left. What he calls a unity ticket, many Democrats fear could be a spoiler by siphoning just enough votes from President Biden to help Donald Trump win back the White House. I've never been in any race I've ever spoiled. I've been in races to win. And if I get in a race, I'm going to win. At a town hall meeting in St. Anselm College in New Hampshire, Manchin, a West Virginia Democrat, and John Huntsman, a former Utah Republican governor, made their pitch for no labels, a bipartisan group trying to move the nation beyond its partisan gridlock. Afterward, they sat down with CNN's Caitlin Collins. Right now, people are sick and tired of what they're seeing and upset about all they see is turmoil and havoc. And we can do better than this. And the people expect us to do better. And uh, this is a good movement. They said Americans deserve a third choice if a rematch emerges next year between Biden and Trump. Should the political, the mainstream political system produce the same results in 24 as it did in 20, in which case three-fourths of the American voters have said, no, not again. We want an option. For more than a decade, the No Labels movement has promoted bipartisanship over extremes. The group, which registers as a nonprofit and declines to disclose its donors, plans to raise $70 million for a candidate in waiting. On Monday night, the group unveiled what it called a common sense policy book, aiming to find middle ground on controversial issues from abortion rights to guns to immigration. It's a centrist agenda that sounds downright utopian in today's deeply divided Washington. We're trying to make sure the parties understand you can't stay in the extreme left or extreme right. No Labels has only secured ballot access in Arizona, Alaska, Oregon, Utah, and Colorado, aides say, with the goal of reaching 20 states by the end of the year. 
Another threat to Biden's re-election bid comes from Cornell West, the former Harvard scholar who is mounting a Green Party presidential bid. He, too, rejects the label of spoiler. I wish they would spend as much time focusing on the plight of poor and working people as they do focusing on the spoiler. I don't even like that category since so many of folk who vote third party don't vote at all. While third party efforts have shown little promise in modern American history, deep displeasure with Trump and Biden have shined a brighter light on the prospects this year. Mindful of an enthusiasm shortfall facing Biden, Democrats are increasingly sounding the alarm. Haunted by Ross Perot's independent bid in 1992, and Green Party runs from Ralph Nader in 2000 and Jill Stein in 2016. Manchin, who has yet to say if he intends to seek re-election to the Senate next year or run for higher office, dismissed such concerns. I'm not here running for president tonight. I'm not. I'm here trying to basically save the nation. There was significant interest in this idea, of course, here in New Hampshire, where the presidential primary process begins. Many voters say they are taking a look at this organization. Manchin, for his part, said he will make a decision by the end of the year. No labels will make a decision next year when they see if there is a Trump-Biden rematch in the offing. There is no doubt, though, hanging over all of this, even though Manchin says he's not a spoiler, some Democrats at the White House and supporters of Joe Biden are not so sure. Phil and Abby. All right, thank you, Jeff Zeleny. Joining us now, our politics reporter for Semaphore, Shelby Talcott. A national political reporter for Axios, Alex Thompson. All right, Alex. Um, I, I loved uh, Dick Durbin, who's the, the number two uh, senator in the Democratic caucus, uh, referred to Joe Manchin as America's biggest political tease, uh, which I think is a fair and, and accurate assessment to some degree. Um, I am so highly skeptical of this and so highly skeptical of paying attention to it. Am I wrong? You know, I was talking to somebody in Joe Manchin's camp last night, and that, that person would say that you are wrong, that this is serious. And in fact, Joe Manchin sort of sees this opposition, all this, you know, what he would see as hand-wringing from Democrats, as actual more encouragement for him to continue doing what he's doing. Because they say this is evidence that no labels is actually tapping into something real, that they are tapping into what the polls show, is that America does not want a Biden-Trump rematch. And so I think... You know, he is the biggest political tease, but I also think that with more attention, the more serious he becomes. And, you know, I couldn't help but notice, it was a small thing, but you notice he was styling his hair a little bit differently. He was using a little bit more product. He was, like, parting the hair a little bit. This is, so, full disclosure, this is, like, my favorite thing from last night and this morning because I have been chuckling about this fact for the better part. And I saw it in your notes this morning. I was like, thank you. I'm not the only crazy person here because it's true. The hairstyle is different. And we as reporters are naturally reading all the tea leaves. What does it mean, Alex Thompson, that there's product in Joe Manchin's hair? When I, I asked his person, I was yeah. just like, what? And they were like, yeah, it was a little bit different. And Manchin's hair has actually been weirdly a bit part of his like political personality. He ran ads about how his wife cut his hair in his re-election bid. So I don't know what's going on. split but, screen. Yeah. These are the important things that we're going to dig into. No, I, lo I loved it because it was You're funny. Right. And it's I also hadn't like noticed a weird, that, yeah. but it is different. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And now I'll be reading the tea leaves. I mean, maybe he's trying to, I don't know, is it parted to the left or to the right? I don't know. <laughs> um, so, but Shelby, I, look, the, the argument, I mean, and they get asked this pretty much every time they talk about no labels. Aren't you just going to take away, especially if you don't want Trump to be the president, take away from the Democrat? And there is polling to suggest that people who don't like both parties 
are more likely, if they're given a choice of the two, to vote for the Democrat. Uh, so how concerned are both parties right now? Do you sense more concern on the left or on the right? I think there's definitely more concern on the left. Uh, but I will say that Trump's campaign is keeping an eye on everything. They say that they keep an eye on this, on what Biden is doing, on what Tim Scott is doing, you know, on what every candidate is doing. But at this point, I do think, based on that polling, that Trump's team is viewing this potentially as an opportunity Mm -hmm. because a lot of people believe that if Joe Manchin were to run, he would take more votes away from Joe Biden. Now, I will tell you, Joe Manchin does not think that. He believes that he can take votes away from Donald Trump. And he also believes that there is a very narrow way for him to win through some of these red states. And I think he, his point of view is that that is something that people are not picking up on or don't or don't see. And that's his angle. And he's definitely keeping the door and open. And not just the red states, but these Rust Belt states that he won in 2016, the margin was basically Jill Stein's vote. Mm-hmm. So there's you know, evidence for that. No, and it's why it's what drives the concern. But it's also, Jeff Zellner made a great point to me the other day that uh, Democrats, at least inside kind of Biden's team, are more concerned about Cornell West as somebody who could actually siphon away. Um, Shelby, I do want to ask, uh, you've got new report. you've had tons of great reporting on the DeSantis campaign and where they stand right now. Obviously, in the midst of a little bit of an overhaul, we have the, the interview with Jake Tapper uh, tonight, which is certainly a shift in media strategy. But there was something that was in one of your stories from a big uh, donor from DeSantis um, that I wanted to read off to you, because it was an interesting kind of contrary view, which is, uh, it's from Dan Eberhardt, uh, who told you, the campaign is smart to adapt. Scott Walker's campaign was too heavy and didn't make changes soon enough. DeSantis' campaign is ahead of the curve and is making the tough choices that will enable them to win in, in the early primary states and beyond. And I feel like that isn't necessarily considered as a possibility at this point, right? You start this spiral as a candidate in campaign and everybody writes you off, you're dead. That becomes kind of the narrative that sticks. But maybe they learn from Scott Walker's implosion. He was on with Dana yesterday, and the parallels, I think, certainly on the surface are there. Do you think that they have figured out a way to quickly shift and adapt and put themselves back into play here? I think it's a little bit too soon to tell, but I will say that donors are very split. You have the Dan Eberharts of the DeSantis campaign who are kind of diehard DeSantis donors who I think will stick with him for a very long time. And then you have a group who are very skeptical and growing more skeptical. And this shakeup placated some, but worried others more. And I, and I do think that there's an opportunity for him to kind of take like the John McCain, the, the McCain yeah. type situation where, you know, he fires his campaign manager or he shakes things up a little bit more aggressively and he ends up doing a lot better. Yeah. Um, comeback story. Plausible. Uh, definitely plausible. And, you know, part of this shift in media strategy is part of this. I mean, I don't think you can overstate how much his approach to mainstream media has changed from just two months ago. And this Jake Tapper interview uh, this afternoon is just the latest instance of it. And Republicans are all going to be tuning in. Some will be uh, popping some popcorn, too. And it's really interesting because he is uh, internally, his team has been very split over whether to do mainstream interviews like the Jake Tapper interview. So it's it's extremely notable that he's doing it this afternoon. And also, uh, you know, praising Jake. We love Jake. But you wouldn't have heard that from Ron DeSantis just a couple of months ago as they were trying to criticize most of the media that's not named Fox News and folks on the right. Yeah. Everybody in politics is going to be watching Jake on CNN at 4 p.m. Tune in. That's a tease is what they call it in the business, <laughs> I believe. Alex Shelby, thanks, guys. Stay with us. 
And don't forget, as I just noted, that exclusive with the Florida governor and GOP presidential can, uh, candidate Ron DeSantis. He joins Jake Tapper one-on-one on the campaign trail. Hear how he plans to take on Trump. The interview is at 4 p.m. Eastern today. And we have new details on that suspect in the Gilgo Beach murders. The one question he asked when he was booked into jail and how his wife and his daughter reacted to the charges, that's ahead. This morning, we're learning more about the suspected serial killer in the Gilgo Beach murders. A source familiar with the case tells CNN Rex Huerman asked law enforcement just one question as they processed him in jail. Is it in the news? Now, investigators in New York say they're still poring over what they describe as a flood of evidence, including a vault in his basement holding hundreds of guns. CNN's Gene Casares is live in New York this morning. And Gene, what's been striking is this is still very much an ongoing investigation What sense do we have of the type of new evidence they've been gathering from Human's house? Absolutely. This is continuing, and they say it will continue for a long time. We do want to tell everyone we have learned that Huerman is now on suicide watch at the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department is telling us that initially he was not, but the medical staff determined through their assessment of him that he should be put on that suicide watch. And as that continues at the Sheriff's Department and in the jail, the prosecution is going forward with their evidence on murder charges for three victims. But the police department, law enforcement in all aspects, continuing that police investigation. Now, what we're learning, they have executed and continue to execute many search warrants for the residents, the office, also a storage unit. But at the residence, we are learning a source is telling CNN that they are looking for anything out of place, anything that could be potential evidence related to the charges, and we are told that they found a doll at the residence, not in the children's rooms, but in another location in the house. And that was a red flag to them. We believe they took that into evidence. And also, they were expecting to to find some guns, but they found 200 to 300 guns, according to a source telling CNN at Huberman's home. And what they found were pistols, revolvers, and semi-automatic rifles. They found them in a walled-off vault behind a locked metal door in the basement. And obviously, they collected all of those guns. They knew 92 of them were registered with the state of New York, but not 200 to 300 of them. Mm. And uh, Hurman's wife and daughter, we haven't heard a ton about them. But what do we know about their reaction to his arrest and these charges? Well, this is what we need to remember. This is a married man. We know he was an architect, big firm right on Fifth Avenue in Midtown New York City. But he had a family at home that he was living with. And the Suffolk County Deputy Police Commissioner spoke out on that. Listen to what he said. So what I'm being told is um, <clears throat> when we initially uh, informed them about uh, their, their husband, their father, uh, they, were, they were shocked. Um, they were disgusted. Uh, they were embarrassed. Uh, so if you ask me, I, I don't believe that they knew about this double life that Mr. Harriman was, was, was living. We have seen many instances where someone who is charged as a serial killer uh, has a family at home that they knew nothing about it. But the police are saying we have many more questions, many more interviews to do with family and friends. And this investigation, they want to go from 2010, when those 11 set of remains between 2010 and 2011 were found, 
everything he did, every moment of every day until last Thursday when he was arrested, because they're looking to see anything else that he may be uh, ultimately believed to be charged with. So much more to learn here on this case. Gene Casares, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, happening overnight, the Ukrainian city of Odessa coming under drone and missile attack just a day after Ukraine hit and damaged Russia's Crimean Bridge. We're live on the ground. Stay with us. And cameras capturing explosions in the Ukrainian port city of Odessa overnight. The attack comes just a day after Ukraine hit and damaged Russia's Crimean bridge. A Ukrainian official says that naval drones carried out that strike. The violence playing out as Russia formally announced that it will no longer allow Ukraine to export grain by way of the Black Sea. The United Nations condemned that move, warning that this could cause food prices to rise and worsen global hunger. Now, joining us now from Kyiv is a correspondent for the Financial Times, Christopher Miller. He is the author of a new book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, which is out right now. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us. Uh, You've spent so much time in Ukraine. You're there right now. I wonder, what is your view of this counteroffensive, how it is going and how that strike that we were just talking about on the Crimean Bridge plays into it? Right. So we've heard President Volodymyr Zelensky admit in in recent days that the counteroffensive isn't going exactly according to plan. And uh, Ukrainian soldiers on the front line who I visited uh, just last week were telling me that they've been forced uh, to even change tactics after uh, their original plan A uh, had had faltered some. They're running into uh, these extremely dense Russian defensive lines and fortifications that include anti-tank trenches and minefields. And these minefields are really slowing Uh, the Ukrainian advance, specifically in the south, where they're trying to cut through or break through, rather, this this, this extremely dense Russian uh, front line to get to uh, this strategic city of Melitopol in hopes of cutting what uh, is known as the land bridge that Russia uses to supply its forces in the southern part of Ukraine. Uh, that strike on the Crimea bridge that we saw uh, was 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 uh, uh, part of Ukraine's strategy to cut off these logistics because the other way that the Russians are getting military materiel and personnel into southern Ukraine is over this uh, bridge uh, from Russia into occupied Crimea and then up through uh, mainland Ukraine to the battlefields there. Chris, what was striking to me in reading your book, particularly as I followed you as a reporter, kind of a a day-by-day, breaking news, great context, all that, but your book was really a step back, kind of part memoir, part giving people a history uh, of how this kind of all came to be, very visceral moments for you personally, including uh, the day of the invasion. Um, But it also acknowledged, you met, you knew Zelensky before he was president. You've kind of watched the evolution of him as both a president and I think as a leader in the country. At this moment in time, how has he changed uh, during the course of you knowing him, of you interacting with him? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most remarkable storylines in, in, this, in this war, is the transformation of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky from a stand-up comic uh, and, and, and comedic actor uh, to president and now a wartime president. Uh, he was extremely popular when he came in as president. Ukrainians like change here. There's only one uh, president in the history of modern Ukraine that's won a second election. Uh, you know, he was, he was brought in to shake things up and, and was elected with more than 73% of the vote. But by the time of Russia's full-scale invasion, in February of 2022, that popularity really had fallen quite a lot. And he was struggling uh, politically. And, and this war has really turned him into a, a, a hero as, as not only a political leader, but as commander in chief. He's really earned the respect of Ukrainians and I think also uh, Ukraine's Western allies. Yeah, I mean, Zelensky really seems to be leaning into what could be his role as a almost historical figure in this broader struggle uh, for, you know, the, the global order and, and to that end on this question of how this all ends. Uh, Crimea and what Russia did uh, initially in its first invasion of Ukraine uh, is part of this picture. Do you think that this war ends with a fully unified Ukraine or will there have to be concessions? That is certainly what Ukraine is hoping for and what this counteroffensive is, is, is meant for, is to recapture all of Russian-occupied territory uh, and, and to bring all of Ukraine back into Kiev's fold. Um, but they are having uh, those, those difficulties that I mentioned earlier. And, and certainly right now, one of the big topics of discussions is negotiations and at what point Ukraine would be willing to sit down, if not with Russia directly, which I, I, I think is, is um, a difficult thing to imagine. Um, then through mediators to discuss a solution to this. But President Zelensky is going to have a very difficult time um, negotiating any uh, lasting peace or, or anything resembling a ceasefire when a lot of the Ukrainian public who have lost loved ones and family members, they have been displaced, their cities have been razed to the ground. They, they don't want um, uh, peace negotiations with Russia. Uh, at least those that would involve Russia keeping some of the occupied territories in Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, and Lugansk Oblast, and, and especially uh, Crimea. Um, all of those are, are, are Ukrainian territory, obviously, and the goal here is to get all of them back. And Ukrainians have said, and polls here show, that they are willing to, even at the risk of escalation, continue fighting until they're able to take back as much territory as, as they can, if not all of it. Yeah. And it's that will of the people, of the yeah. Ukrainian people, that's gotten this war to this point when many people thought it would just end in a couple of days or weeks even. Including just about all the Western leaders. Yeah. Um, Christopher Miller, thanks so much for your time. The book is called The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. It is both very personal, very poignant, uh, but also extremely uh, well-written kind of recitation of the last 15, 20 years. Uh, it's just an excellent book. And a breakthrough in the battle against Alzheimer's disease, the new drug that could be approved by the FDA soon. But first, from cutting spending to picking up second jobs, Americans are bracing for massive disruptions to their budgets when student loan payments come due this fall. We just decided to throw a big boulder right in the path that I was on. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. In just two and a half months, borrowers are set to start paying off their student loan debts again. That's after a three-plus years-long pause during the pandemic and after the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's plan to cancel some student loan debt. Borrowers are losing hope 
for some financial help. Some families say they're going to have to make major sacrifices to be able to start making those payments again. CNN's Gabe Cohen is here. And Gabe, you spoke to some of those families. What are they thinking and feeling right now? Yeah, so payments start in October, but you can sense this panic is already starting to set in. Interest on those payments picks back up in September. So more than 40 million Americans, they need to start making these payments or they're just going to see that debt grow. And remember, this is not the same economy that it was in 2020. Cost of living has skyrocketed. And for many borrowers, the threat of losing hundreds of dollars from their monthly budget is a serious cause for concern. Elijah. At the Johnson home in West Virginia, family time is rare these days. Zach is working overtime and weekends, and when he gets home, Melissa heads to her part-time night shift at a distribution center. Yeah, it's kind of like high and by. <laughs> Both picking up hours because their student loan payments are coming due. We'll manage, but we're going to have to tighten it up again. Yeah, I'm glad I got the job. The nationwide payment pause since 2020 has left an extra $700 in the Johnson's monthly budget. Welcome home! It helped them buy a home. I never thought it would happen. Were you proud? Oh, yeah. But with $75,000 of student debt looming, they're only buying necessities, foregoing blinds and bed frames, working to pay off their loans in six years. Just wish you could be home more, but you have to do what you have to do for your family. Student loan payments restart this October, and Americans are anxiously preparing. By one estimate, 44 million people will owe, on average, roughly two to $300 each month, at a time when most are still feeling squeezed by high inflation, up 18% since the 2020 pause. We're barely managing things as it is. Tim Hughes, an L.A. public school teacher, is working summer school to make extra money and cutting way back on spending. Do you regret taking out loans and following the path you did? Yes. When I look at my students, I feel like I'm doing them wrong if I tell them to set their sights on college and <laughs> if they're going to have to take on loans. The Biden administration announced a new income-driven plan to lower monthly payments after the Supreme Court struck down its loan forgiveness program. But many borrowers still don't know what they'll owe each month. It's kind of like you've decided to hit me with a sledgehammer. Sisters Erica and Tiana rent a home in Maryland with their mother. Mom's a teacher, Tiana's a pastry chef, and Erica is a clerk for an embassy. We lived, we survived, and now I have to look at our budget and our finances and say, can we continue to survive if she has to put out $430, if I have to put out 150 if my mother has to put out $500 a month. The student loan pause helped them dig out of debt and start saving for a home. But that dream is dwindling, staring down more than $200,000 of student loans. You just decided to throw a big boulder right in the path that I was on. And so the Biden administration is planning an on-ramp period to help people avoid penalties in this first year. And look, the president's save plan could drastically cut down monthly requirements for a lot of these borrowers. But look, guys, after the loan forgiveness debacle that we have seen in recent months, so many of the borrowers I spoke with told me they're just not confident what's going to survive legal challenges and what help they're going to get. And as of now, when they're going to get it. There have been so many ups and downs for folks on their student loans. Uh, we'll see what the future holds. Gabe Cohen, thank you. Thanks, buddy. Well, happening today, the first hearing in former President Trump's classified documents case, what we could learn about the timeline for trial. 
And the New York Jets, including Aaron Rodgers, will be this year's subject on HBO's Hard Knocks. But a key part of the training camp we won't see that's ahead. And before we go to break, a look at the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team in Auckland, New Zealand, training for the FIFA World Cup. The tournament kicks off this Thursday. The U.S. team will play its first match on Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern against Vietnam. Can't wait for that. I'm so excited. We'll be right back. It's the most wonderful time of the year, Abby. <laughs> Football's about to start. Obviously, football. I was going to say, you football, tell me. Football. NFL fans are about to get an inside look at one of the most intriguing storylines of the season, Aaron Rodgers' first training camp with the New York Jets. CNN Sports anchor and nine-year NFL veteran it himself, NFL? the one and only NFL Coy star? Wire joins us right now. So, Coy, I know you're more excited than Phil Mattingly about this. <laughs> he only 51 days until the kickoff of the season, but who's counting? This series features the pad-popping, high-stress, high-stakes nature of training camp where players are fighting to make the team, and we get the behind-the-scenes glimpse of the building of a team in America's most popular sport. It'll be the New York Jets, whose players have plenty of personality, y'all. They have a part-time Jeopardy game show host, an ayahuasca psychedelic tea drinker, a darkness retreat enthusiast, and that's all one person. New QB, four-time league MVP, Aaron Rodgers. The Jets were on the show in 2010, and they ended up going 11-5, advancing to the AFC Championship game that season. But that was the last time the Jets made the playoffs. They are the only team in the league with an active playoff drought of 10 or more years. Three other teams met eligibility requirements to appear on the show this season. The Bears, Saints, and Commanders, but it will be the Jets' first episode of Hard Knocks premieres August 8th on HBO and Max. Get your popcorn ready. Hmm. Aaron Rodgers has to realize Sauce Gardner is actually the only person everyone's <laughs> going to want to watch on that show. The other <laughs> thing, I saw that they're not super happy about being on the show, even though I think that the last time they were on it, they did pretty well. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, they can go ahead and count their money. Let us enjoy this. Coy <laughs> Wire, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. You got it. And seeing you this morning continues right now. More than 1,500 places in the U.S. have experienced record high temperatures so far this month. By September, half of the world's oceans will be in a category three or four marine heat wave. Feels like you're actually on fire after you're out here for a while. That's not gonna change this week and it's not gonna change next week either. This is the first time that both sides of this case will appear before Trump-appointed Judge Eileen Cannon. She did put both sides on notice that they will be talking about a trial date. I think, in the interest of the American people, it should be after the election. Critical to our legal system is people buying in. The No Labels movement has promoted bipartisanship over extremes. They've gone too far right and too far left. I don't think No Labels is a political party. People are sick and tired of what they're seeing. This is a good movement. Let's just be clear what it is, because the American people will not embrace it. Russia retaliating by air for the naval attack on its bridge to Crimea over the weekend. Some dramatic scenes and sounds here in the port city of Odessa, one of the most critical and important cities in the country. This is an illegal bridge, illegal construction, without seeking any permissions from Ukraine. Authorities now say they believe it's possible. Human has been committing murders for more than a decade. Officials found more than 200 firearms in a walled-off vault. Every investigative step that we took failed to eliminate him. We were shocked. We were disgusted. We were embarrassed. Good Tuesday morning, everyone. Poppy is off this week. Abby Phillip joins me. 
Abby. Nice to see you again. It's always a pleasure. Um, there's a lot of news, but I'm also fascinated by the developments in the Trump case, which is rarely something I say publicly, but this yeah. one, this is an actual big day. There's actual movement today, yes. and we will get to that right now. Just hours from now, a federal judge holds the first key hearing in the classified documents case against the former president and his aide slash co-defendant, Walt Nada. Judge Eileen Cannon is telling both prosecutors and defense attorneys to be ready to talk about the timeline in that trial. The Justice Department wants it to start this year, but the former president's lawyers are also now pushing for a delay. They say that this case is complex and that their client is busy. He's running for president. Also on the agenda, talking about how sensitive classified documents should be handled as evidence. Now, with more to, on what to expect from today's proceedings, the CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams. Um, Elliot, I actually wasn't kidding about I'm very intrigued to see what happens today, in large part because we just haven't heard from Judge Eileen Cannell. There's been a lot of discussion about her, what she may or may not do. What should we expect today? Not only have we not heard from Judge Eileen Cannon, the parties have not. They have not sat down and met with her uh, in person. So let's talk through what today is. In any other trial, Phil, this would be a relatively simple, straightforward pre-trial conference. Status conference is what lawyers call it. Unfortunately, this is not any other trial, and they're going to be handling a few things. Number one, what are the procedures governing classified documents? That's going to be the big sticky one today, which is what do the prosecutors actually have to turn over to defense? What can they do in the form of summaries? Who sees it? And so on. That'll be a legal fight over the next couple of days. Scheduling, when is this dang thing happening? And I think that's a big fight. Maybe we get an answer on it today. Probably not, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. And again, it's the first hearing in front of Judge Cannon. Now, she, as you may recall, and as people may recall, is a federal judge who got blasted, sort of eviscerated for an opinion she issued some months ago that was really seen as just, just getting the law and the facts just quite wrong in this case and got overturned by the appeals court. You got Jack Smith, who's the special counsel overseeing all of this, and everybody knows who the 45th president of the United States is, Donald Trump, and Walt Nauta, his co-defendant in a uh, classified documents case. Oh, I want to ask about Walt Nauta. Yeah. Uh, I, I think people may have been living their lives and not noticed that there was moments where he didn't have lawyers, we weren't exactly sure when he was going to be arraigned. Is yeah. he there now? But he does have lawyers. It was several weeks after former President Trump got arraigned that Walt Nauta finally did. He has now hired counsel. Number one, Stanley Woodward. Number two, Sasha Dedan. Woodward is based in Washington, D.C. Sasha Dedan based in Florida. He has uh, these two counsels. Neither of them are national security lawyers, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. They're both very skilled, but not national security lawyers. Now, you mentioned the classified and sensitive documents. Yeah. T talk about the process. How long is it going to take for yeah. people to, be able to actually look at the evidence here? Yeah, so look, you've got to be cleared. Even to be a lawyer representing someone in a classified document, he's got to get a security clearance where they're going to look into things like your foreign contacts. Even I, with family members, a sister born in Jamaica before my parents moved here, had to have that explored for my background checks in government. Your financial history, could you be bribed? Do you have debts? And of course, your criminal history. Now, all that can typically take months, but they can expedite it if it's important enough. And this is a pretty high uh, sensitivity and high import, uh, import matter that they would expedite. Now, something important to know, Phil, is that the whole trial team doesn't need to be cleared necessarily just to start. They could proceed if just one of Nauda's attorneys got a security clearance. Now, Nauda would kick and scream about that and say, you know, um, I want my whole team to be able to debate the evidence right. here. But 
No, you just got to get one person, get a security clearance who can start moving things along. And the judge can make a ruling on that, saying that that's okay. I don't think there's a wider gulf between when the Justice Department wants the trial to begin and when Trump's team wants the trial to begin. The former has an actual date, the latter amorphous to some degree. But it seems like we're at least going to get some insight into the direction Judge Anlene Cannon is leaning today. Is that fair? Yes, there is. There could be a wider gulf because these two, the uh, Judge Cannon and the Justice Department, have su- suggested dates. Donald Trump has said, just push it off into the future indefinitely. Now, the judge initially set August 14th as the date for a trial. Book it, mark it down. That is not happening. The Justice Department said December 11th that everybody could get ready for trial by then. The former president said, I am a candidate for office. I'm running for office. Let's just push this off indefinitely into the future and never have or maybe never have this trial. That's not happening either, I think. Okay. All right. Abby. All right, you two, make your way on over here. We have more to discuss. Uh, Joining us now is national political team leader at Bloomberg, Mario Parker, and CNN political analyst and White House reporter for the Associated Press, Sungmin Kim. So uh, some interesting questions being raised here uh, that go to the heart of actually, I think, the Trump case, which is that he's not the only person to be charged with uh, mishandling national security documents. One of the other people is uh, is uh, Jack Teixeira, that National Guardsman who was recently charged. And now his lawyers are saying, well, if you're letting this guy out on bail and he's able to walk free and campaign around the country, why can't I? No, it's a smart strategy on his lawyer's part, for, for sure. But I think one thing is telling the silence that you're hearing from Republicans, right, in contrast to what you hear when Donald Trump was indicted. They came racing to his defense. I'm thinking of Lindsey Graham, for example. But Lindsey Graham also cautioned Republicans to, uh, in, in coming to Teixeira's defense as well. So you're seeing the contrast and distortions that the party has to make between the loyalty to Trump and then just just looking at the case on its merits. Yeah, and Sungman, I want to get to you on this other thing that's very important here, which is when we talk about Trump and where this is all headed for uh, a potential second term if he is able to run, he's trying to make the argument, according to the New York Times, uh, that the plans for a second term would basically involve taking over parts of the government that are supposed to be independent, at least as we know them right now, and making them... uh, part of the control of the president alone. Here's what the Times says. Trump and his associates have a broader goal to alter the balance of power by increasing the president's authority over every part of the federal government that now operates by either law or tradition with any measure of independence from political interference by the White House. That is a huge sea change for how the government typically works. Right, right. I mean, I think all of us know from covering President Trump's uh, first term in office that he is not someone who believes in the concept of checks and balances. And we know that from our all of our reporting that he was even restrained at times during his four years in office because there were people around him that told him, no, this is this is a guardrail that we cannot pass these, uh, these, these are sort of norms that we cannot break. And also he was running for re-election and he didn't want to push the boundaries any more than he had to. But this remarkable reporting from the New York Times shows that he is willing to let go and really go through all of those boundaries in terms of how much executive power is concentrated in the Oval Office, the potential easy firing of civil servants, which I thought was a really, uh, really remarkable piece of um, p- part of that plan. 
and just complete dis disregard for the legislative power of Congress. And it was reminding me of some of the other ways that um, he tried to push the boundaries while in office. And, you know, think of the time that he tried to go around Congress to get money for that border wall. And while Republicans did push back at the time, not enough, I would say. So it'll be really interesting to see just how this plan materializes. I would be really interesting to see how other Republicans respond to this plan, if they agree with this vision, and how he kind of, you know, pushes this idea going forward. And a key piece of this is the Justice Department as well, which is supposed to operate independently in terms of its investigations. Trump and his allies, they want to change that. Oh, no, absolutely. And look, the former president fired an attorney general in the form of Jeff Sessions a couple years ago over the fact that Jeff Sessions, who's unabashedly not a Democrat, <laughs> uh, but Jeff Sessions got fired for not sufficiently hewing to the line that, that the former president wanted him to. Look, I was you know, talking with another former federal prosecutor the other day who said that I don't think Trump ever goes to trial because they figure out a way to push this past 2024, get a new Justice Department in, one that you can and pardon everybody affiliated with it, and uh, just just take the, the case off the trial calendar altogether. So uh, this would be in line with at least how the former president governed in the past. Who knows what he would do a second time around, but history seems to be a guide. I gotta be honest, I'm a little disappointed in you guys. This was kind of, in my view, the perfect 30 minute panel on the unitary theory of the executive, know, which is really so where I thought we were gonna go oh. down. <laughs> we're gonna have to, we're gonna need another hour. <laughs> this is right. part of the That's fine, we're, control and we're good with that, right? But I think what is striking, and the Times did such a great job of bringing this all together. We have known that there are kind of 501c3s, outside nonprofit groups that have been putting together a policy infrastructure here. There have been key players from the former Trump orbit that have moved on into uh, kind of an outside role of crafting an actual policy plan and an actual policy infrastructure. And I think that's what's been striking to me, Mario, is because so much of those first four years were just pure chaos and him kind of flitting about based on wherever his uh, mind was on that uh, particular day. This is structurally very different in terms of a second term plan. No, absolutely. Recall in 2016, they were caught off guard by his win, the binder that Chris Christie, who was then the transition director, right. that was tossed into to the garbage can as well. You've got essentially a bunch of Trump, ex-Trump officials who have seeded at many of the think tanks. We're talking Heritage Foundation, Project 2025, yep. America First Pro Pro Policy Institute as well. And when you speak to some of these Republicans, they say that, hey, we want to hit the ground running with a second term. They've got personnel already, spreadsheets with personnel already outlined. They've got policies outlined as well. So they're looking to really uh, give Trump essentially a menu from which to choose from on day one. And one other point that I'd like to make on this is the fact that Trump is exploiting this, this metamorphosis that he accelerated with the Republican Party, one that favored small government, but now is uh, favoring a distrust of government. Yeah, and at its core, there's nothing wrong with an incoming administration uh, setting a policy agenda and having the no. people that it wants. Yeah, um, you know, I served in government. You should for probably a want that. You should want that. We <laughs> should, we should want that because it, it's the smooth transfer of government. The problem is the violations of norms. And when you're talking about firing attorneys general, secretaries of state, cabinet officials, simply for not even disagreeing with the president, not behaving uh, in a lawful manner, for lack of a better way to put it, then you have a problem. And I, and I think we're starting to see the early signs of some of that were there to be a second term. All right, Elliot Williams, Sung Man, Mario, thanks guys, appreciate it. 
Well, a CNN exclusive for governor and GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis joins Jake Tapper one-on-one -on, -one on the campaign trail. Hear how he plans to take on Trump, perhaps some of his policy proposals. This interview begins today at 4 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss it. And we have some breaking news now. A U.S. national is believed to be in North Korea in custody after crossing the military demarcation line into North Korea during a tour of the joint security area. That's according to the United Nations Command, which says it is working with counterparts in North Korea's army to resolve the incident. We are following that story very closely, and we will bring you more details as they come in here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. And we are continuing to following the breaking news just in a U.S. national is believed to be in North Korean custody after crossing the military demarcation line into North Korea during a tour of the joint security area. That is according to the United Nations Command, which says it is working with counterparts of North Korea's army to resolve the incident. Kylie Atwood from the State Department and Will Ripley in the region are working on the story. They will join us momentarily. We're going to keep you posted throughout the morning as we learn more about this breaking development. But right now, a live look at Phoenix, Arizona, where temperatures are expected to reach a staggering 117 degrees today, continuing a record-breaking streak of 19 consecutive days above 110. Now, the deadly and unrelenting heat wave is beating down on Americans across the United States. Across 60, around 65 million people are now under heat alerts from Florida to California. And according to a top UK-based climate advisory group, quote, Heat hell is worldwide now, stretching from southern Europe to China. So let's get straight to CNN's Derek Van Dam with the forecast here. Uh, there is so much going on here, and none of it is good. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're actually living out this heat hell in real time, both in D.C. where you are and Atlanta where I'm located as well. I think what's so astounding is how widespread these climate-related weather alerts happen to be. Uh, it seems like nobody's immune to that. We've got our excessive heat warnings. We've got air quality alerts because of wildfire smokes and also flash flood alerts. Uh, I think Abby said it best at the 6 o'clock hour. What's next? Little tiny locusts taking over? I mean, what is this? Uh, downtown Atlanta. This is a clear picture. Reminds me of New York a couple of weeks ago, right? The downtown buildings barely discernible because that is how thick the wildfire, wildfire smoke currently is. And people, that is unhealthy to breathe. It is unhealthy for sensitive groups, young, the old, everyone in between as well. And it blankets much of the eastern seaboard. Uh, you can see it from Atlanta to Charlotte, D.C. to New York, all the way to Boston and Portland, although uh, some areas not as thick as what we're experiencing across the southeast. The good news is a cold front will clear things out quickly across the southeast and kind of just move the smoke around and dissipate it in some places and thicken it up in others. Now, the other big climate-related story is, of course, the excessive heat that is breaking records, over 190 record temperatures possible over the days to come, triple-digit heat for so many locations. And if you're looking for a bit of relief in Phoenix, you have to wait until Monday of next week. And I say that with a bit of sarcasm. You can literally cut the sarcasm with a knife in here, just as thick as the smoke is outside. High of 114 next week. Is that relief? Abby? Yeah, Phil? that is extreme. <laughs> I mean, not only is it not relief, but it's extremely dangerous. Derek, you know, I, as you're talking about the hot temperatures in the air, I'm also wondering about what's happening in the water as we head into the fall and what that yeah. means uh, as our forecast uh, potentially goes into hurricane season. Well, the water temperatures are excessively warm. In fact, we are reaching global record temperature, record temperature 
territory, especially across the Florida Keys and off the Florida Peninsula. And what that's doing is just adding potential fuel for hurricanes if and when they do develop as we enter into the peak season of hurricane season. Some of the moisture that's across the northeast, this is all related to uh, the tropics as well in some far stretch, but it's enough to uh, allow for more rainfall across the northeast and it's being aided by, well, our friend there, the Atlantic Ocean, that is above average in terms of temperatures. Abby. All right, Derek Van Dam, thank you. We'll keep you on the line for our, uh, our fo- forecast for the end of times here. But back to <laughs> our breaking news right now. Yes, the U.S. national uh, that is believed to be in North Korean custody. We are still following this story. We are getting new reporting as we speak. This is just happening now. Priscilla Alvarez is at the White House with more. Priscilla, I know this is fast moving, and I definitely know these early moments when you're trying to get people on the phone to figure out what's going on. What do we know, at least at this point, from the Biden administration? That's right, Phil. I've reached out to the White House to get comment on this and try to get additional details as to what they know and are monitoring. But here's what we know so far, according to a tweet from the United Nations Command. They said that a U.S. national on a joint security area tour crossed without authorization uh, the military demarcation line into the Democratic People's uh, Republic of Korea. We believe he is currently in custody and are working with our KPA counterparts to resolve the incident. Now, this is an orientation tour that is located inside the demilitarized zone between South and North Korea and is organized by the UNC and is open to the general public. So these are the details that we have so far, simply that a U.S. national is believed to be uh, in North Korean custody. As you know, Phil, uh, the detainment of American citizens is a top priority for the White House when it happens abroad. So this is a situation that we can imagine the White House is closely monitoring and is aware of. But again, we have reached out for comment to see what more they can tell us about this situation so far. All we know, again, is this tweet from the United Nations command that a U.S. national is in North Korean custody. Phil. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, keep us posted. Stay close by. I know this is fast moving and you've got people to talk to on the phone. Right now, we want to shift over to Will Ripley, who's uh, live for us in Taipei. And Will, I want to start with with what you've heard, at least up to this point in these early moments, uh, about what actually happened, but also some context, given your experience in that area of of where this actually is, what may have actually happened here based on uh, when you've been down there. Uh, It is really fascinating to think that we are now in the year 2023 and you have this apparent, you know, U.S. national crossing the military demarcation line in this very uh, almost like a Cold War relic feeling uh, village. Panmunjom is what it's called. And basically there are these buildings and half of the building is in North Korea, half of the building is in South Korea. And there's a table in the middle. And what the two sides would do back when they were talking in in that way is that they would actually sit at the table. One would sit on the north side, one would sit on the south side, and that's how they communicated. That's how they signed uh, in the armistice that essentially put the Korean War on pause, but never officially ended the Korean War. That's one of the contentious issues still facing the two Koreas to this day. So for somebody to actually walk across, it's not actually, it's not a very long distance that they would have to travel. You're talking about a matter of a few footsteps. Now there are uh, armed soldiers uh, that are there. Uh, This is called the, you know, this is called the the demilitarized zone, but actually the DMZ is anything but demilitarized. It's a very dangerous area. 
if you step off course, there are mines. Uh, of course, the soldiers carry weapons. There are sniper towers. So this is not a place that somebody would want to be just casually walking around, even though the natural beauty of it is quite is quite something. Uh, Americans have tried to uh, you know, claim refuge inside North Korea before. I remember inter interviewing a, a New York University college student who, who landed on a, on a tourist trip in North Korea back when that was still happening before the pandemic kind of hermetically sealed the borders. And I asked him why he, he did what he did. And he at that point, after kind of sitting in an in a isolation jail cell and, uh, you know, having, you know, eight hour work days of lifting rocks, basically in his own private prison, certainly not the conditions that North Korean prisoners have, much nicer for, for Western prisoners in that country. Um, but he was he was presented to us, presented to the media because they used him in North Korean propaganda and then they were ready to get that American out. Um, now, Otto Warmbier, another student who was arrested, obviously had a very different outcome. That was a horrible, tragic case. We were in North Korea when we found out that he had died. But the vast majority of Americans detained there, guys, they, they, they are basically held in their own private prison. And then they're used as some sort of a leverage, leverage or for a period of months or perhaps even a little bit longer. They might even go through a trial in North Korea, but then eventually they will be released and sent back to the United States, sent back home to their, to their families. All right. Well, Ripley, thank you for that. And back to you, Priscilla, over at the White House. Uh, in a situation like this, uh, there's always constant tensions with North Korea. How is the White House uh, handling a, a moment like this with potentially another detained American in uh, a place uh, where we don't have the best uh, diplomatic relations, if at all, right now? That's right. They're really relying on back channels and the conversations they can have with allies in the region. So, uh, you would have U.S. officials talking to counterparts, not in North Korea necessarily, but wh whoever they have in that region to try to get an understanding, for example, with United Nations command as to who this person is, what the circumstances were around them crossing into North Korea. So these are questions that we have currently and ones that the White House is trying to answer with uh, U.S. officials in touch with officials abroad on this situation, including in this situation where we know this was a U.S. national who was on a tour, again, one that is open to the general public and trying to understand what the circumstances were of this person crossing this demarcation line. So, of course, Abby, there are a lot of questions here. It's a fast evolving situation and one that the White House and administration officials are going to be working around the clock to get their arms around as they try to find some resolution here. Hey, Will, back to you. You know, as I've covered the White House over the course of the last couple of years, I think every month or two I would check in with the NSC, say, hey, I know you guys have tried to open lines of communications with the North Koreans. Has there been any progress? The answer has always been a, a very firm and unequivocal no, saying that there is still an opportunity there. They are still willing to talk, but there has been no reciprocation at any point. I'm wondering, as we try and figure out what exactly happened here on the ground, the context of the relationship right now with the escalating uh, missile tests um, and obviously no communication whatsoever, uh, who, who would the U.S. officials have talking to the North Koreans in this moment as they try and figure this out? At the moment, there's no official line of communication, Phil, and so you kind of hit the nail on the head. This is not a great time 
to be an American detained in North Korea because the North Koreans have really no desire at the moment uh, to do business with the United States. That all kind of business fell apart in Hanoi, Vietnam, when President Trump and Kim Jong-un sat down for a while. President Trump ended up walking out of that meeting, getting back on the plane, going back to Washington, uh, where he was preoccupied with, uh, you know, a flurry of domestic matters that he was facing, impeachment being one of the, the, the biggest one. Uh, but Kim Jong-un was left there. Uh, you know, with an empty a plate at the lunch table, you know, having to go back on his train after telling his own people that he was going to go and negotiate with the United States and he was left humiliated. So during the Kim Jong-un lifetime, I doubt that we'll ever see diplomacy with North Korea again. He feels emboldened uh, to launch as many missiles as he wants and test as many nuclear weapons as he wants now, because he basically has the support, even unspoken, but the support of China and Russia, who will veto anything at the UN Security Council that would tighten the already incredibly tight sanctions on North Korea that have been unable to you know, stop the nuclear program. So, you know, there, there are other U.S. Uh, servicemen who've defected to North Korea. Some of them have really interesting stories. Some of them ended up appearing, you know, on North Korean movies at playing the, the evil Western character. So uh, it's not always, uh, you know, a life of, of gloom and doom if these people uh, do end up staying in North Korea. But that that was back decades ago. It's a very different situation now between North Korea, South Korea and the United States. All right, guys. So actually, Will, I, I do have one more before I let you go. The, the, the kind of announcement of this or, or the notification of this came from a, a tweet from the United Nations Command. Uh, in terms of how things work there on the ground, as somebody who's been there, who's had experience kind of in this area and in dealing in this very kind of opaque space, the United Nations Command, what, what's their role here? How, how do they kind of serve as a, a middle ground or to some degree a conduit at this point? What... What they're going to do is they're going to try to find a friendly intermediary country that still has a diplomatic presence in Pyongyang. But that is not going to be easy because most of them pulled out during the pandemic, because essentially the situation was uh, there's no banking system to speak of in North Korea. So so the way that foreign operations uh, will, will operate is they basically carry in, they hand carry in suitcases full of cash. But when the border was closed during the pandemic, the bills kept coming, but they didn't have anybody to, who could actually go in and carry cash and bring cash. So one by one, countries started closing their diplomatic operations. And there are now fewer diplomats, fewer foreigners, fewer NGOs. North Korea and its people are more isolated today than arguably they've ever been in their entire history of 70 plus years of, of the existence of North Korea. Uh, because because all of the foreigners were kind of forced out during the pandemic, the government has imposed incredibly new uh, stringent measures to try to prevent people from from fleeing to sit to the south. You know, they they bolstered border security. They've tightened uh, the surveillance state apparatus that was already incredibly strong. And so uh, People inside North Korea are literally living in this kind of black box of isolation from the rest of the world. It's a very, very difficult time to try to get a message in or out. That said, there's email, there's phone. Those things still work. And so people are going to be using back channels trying to find a way uh, to, to, to start talking about this American and how to resolve it. And I can guarantee the North would like to resolve it as well. This is kind of a pain in the neck for them, not something that they asked for. They just kind of had this thrust upon them. All right, Will Ripley for us in Taipei, uh, Priscilla Alvarez for us on the North Lawn at the White House. Guys, keep us posted as you learn more. We're definitely going to be coming back to you again. The breaking news that we're following right now, a U.S. national has crossed the military demarcation line into North Korea during a joint security area tour. That's according to the United Nations Command. 
uh, via tweet. We're going to have more on this as we get more reporting throughout the course of this morning. And we're also going to be speaking with former CIA analyst and Michigan Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin about this. She's going to join us here live. Coming up next. Turning back now to our breaking news, a U.S. national is believed to be in North Korean custody. We want to bring in, bring in Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan. She's a member of the House Armed Services Committee, former CIA analyst who worked alongside the U.S. military during three tours in Iraq. And Congresswoman, there's a lot I want to get with, to you on uh, related to what's going on on Capitol Hill. But I want to start with this because you noted you had been to this area, I think, in 2021. Um, what's your sense of, of what this means or what it could mean? And I guess the plausibility of accidentally walking across this line. Yeah, you know, I was there with a congressional delegation, a bipartisan congressional delegation in 2021. It is one of the most constrained areas of the world. I mean, I, it, I'm, again, these are all first reports, so no one really knows what's going on. But it's hard to imagine that someone just sort of mistakenly wandered off and then got grabbed by the North Korean side. You are looking at them. They are trained on you. You know exactly where the border is. And these tours are designed to show you just how rigid the security is. So um, it seems like a really strange story to me, and but we'll we'll have to see what happens. It just seems odd. Yeah, and we're, we're getting more reporting as we speak. Our reporters are, are kind of working the phones. This is just starting to develop right now. I do On the U.S.-North Korea relationship, we were talking last block, constantly talking to White House officials saying we're, we're, the door is open if they want to talk. There has been no engagement. Obviously, they have continued to escalate very aggressively their uh, missile launches and tests. Yeah. What's your sense right now of not the U.S. relationship with North Korea, but just North Korea generally and what they're trying to accomplish? I mean, North Korea, we all know that they there's sort of ebbs and flows of how much um, sort of noise they make. We do have a pretty unusual event going on where we have a port call um, of a, a ballistic ship that's happening in South Korea, which we know has agitated them. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my sense is uh, they're a country that know, is deeply in poverty and gets attention when they have bad behavior. And the bad behavior is something that um, they periodically insert into our lives and we just have to manage it. Um, but it, it's, it is interesting to me that these things are happening around the same time. Later today, you are going to be uh, part of a hearing on artificial intelligence and uh, kind of how it affects the U.S. military and I think some adversaries as well. This has been kind of topic one on Capitol Hill, which is fascinating because Capitol Hill is not really known for technology <laughs> or, or figuring out a way how to manage it. But the question of the military application of it right now and trying to find the balance, um, what's your sense of the amount of AI that's being utilized right now by U.S. forces compared to adversaries? Well, we know that we're investing in artificial intelligence. We just were negotiating a bill, um, you know, on the Pentagon budget. And so we know the amount that we're investing. But typically in the last few years, China has been investing, you know, 10 times what we've been investing. So it definitely gets our attention. It definitely gets our focus. And that's why, you know, we're having a hearing today. I think what is the problem is you can have all the hearings you want, um, but the, the folks who are testifying from the industry, they want regulation. They want oversight but they don't know how to do it in a way that doesn't constrain the industry. They, they, or they're saying, please regulate us, which is very strange for a group from Silicon Valley. That's not usually what we hear, um, but, um, but we don't know exactly the right way to do it. And so we, we've been trying to educate ourselves and get smart, but there's no way around the fact the future of warfare in the world is going to be powered by AI and less about hardware, ships, planes, um, and more about technology. 
You mentioned the, the scale of the investment of China versus the United States. Has that had a tangible effect in terms of force posture, in terms of force capability, or is it just something that they're building towards right now and the U.S. doesn't have a lot of insight into it? Well, look, if you're the Chinese military and you say, look at the United States, I mean, the most capable military in the world, more ships, more planes than we could ever catch up to have. So how do we leapfrog? How do we jump a few generations? Technology, cyber, space, they're deeply investing in space technology. Um, and artificial intelligence helps them do that. And so we're watching them leapfrog in a way that, you know, if you're a military person, you're saying this increases our vulnerability. How do we make sure we keep up? So it's going to affect everything, but it's certainly affecting the ability of a, a military like China and catching up to American, you know, capability. Um, another issue that's going on uh, this week in the House, uh, the issue of Israel has come up. It has been an, an issue that has often fractured your caucus to some degree. Uh, not right down the middle. There's, it's a smaller segment on one side. But I guess my question is right now, one, do you believe uh, Congresswoman Jayapal has done enough in terms of uh, kind of walking back the statement that she made about Israel being a racist nation? And two, there's going to be a vote proposed by a, a resolution introduced by a Republican today uh, basically stating that. Um, are you going to vote for that? Do you believe that that's problematic for your caucus, for your party? So, you know, I, it seems like every week when we come back over the, from the weekend, it, there's just a lot of inflammatory rhetoric that's just being thrown around that sort of leaders often forget that people are watching and they take their cues. Leadership climate is set at the top. So I obviously didn't agree with Representative Jayapal's statements. She walked them back. Um, we also had some crazy inflammatory statements yesterday about the connection between COVID-19 and Jewish people for someone who's been invited to testify in front of Jim Jordan and the Judiciary Committee. So I put out something that just said, like, can we just cool it on the rhetoric? Um, she apologized. Uh, uh, she called um, and reached out to me. Um, and we have a statement or that we're going to or a resolution that we're voting on. It's very simple. It's three paragraphs. It's about support for Israel. So I'll be voting for it. Um, but everyone just needs to tone it down on Capitol Hill because the whole country is watching and taking their cues from us. You make an interesting point. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was invited to testify to a Judiciary Select Subcommittee on Thursday. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, was asked yesterday, look, if this is the issue, if anti-Semitism or concerns about anti-Semitism is an issue, how are you plausibly going to have Robert Kennedy come testify? And he responded, I disagree with everything he said, uh, telling reporters, but I don't think censoring is somebody is actually the answer here. Uh, what I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is there's a difference between censoring somebody and inviting them to testify at a hearing. Have you gotten any indication that Republicans are uneasy about that testimony on Thursday? No, which is a part, part of the problem. And when they're, when they're uh, screaming and pointing at the other side because of perceptions of, you know, speech that, didn't, that wasn't right, um, you, you sort of say, well, guys, just, just have an even balanced hand with it. If you're going to call out something on one side, call it out in your own caucus as well. And that's a good lesson for everybody in Congress. I think it's a signal of how broken Congress is, that we just don't um, sort of have that even hand and say nasty rhetoric should be pushed back on no matter who it is. We, we basically say, well, if it's my side, it's okay. But if it's the other side, it's like the end of the world. And this is just a part and parcel of just how tense and, and sort of zero sum the whole debate has become. And, and it's not what the country wants, likes, deserves. It's just, it's exhausting for the country. Uh, I want to ask you before I let you go, we don't have a lot of time left. Um, you're, uh, have put your name out there to be a, a candidate to move across the Capitol to the United States Senate. Um, huge fundraising number. National Democrats very excited about your campaign. You do have a, a challenger in Hill Harper, uh, activist, former actor who has come in. 
What's your sense of the race right now, now that Hill Harper came in this month? Well, there's lots of people in the race. And just to be fair to everybody, I think there are five other candidates. So and this is our system. You know, we're a democracy. And so everybody gets to compete. You know, six years ago today, I was just starting out and running for the first time, never had thought about running. So I don't, you know, uh, uh, have a problem with anybody deciding to run and the voters are going to get to decide. That's our system. All right. Let's just lock in. Thanks so much, Congressman. Appreciate your time. All right. The White House is slamming Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville for holding up military promotions. But how are his constituents in Alabama reacting? We'll take you there next. Well, I'm pro-life and I'm a conservative, but I really don't believe that he should hold up military promotions. I'm certain that he would not compromise, and nor do I think he should. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A cascading effect of delayed promotions threatens to brain drain from the military. And military families do not know where they will live, where spouses will work, where children will go to school. Well, that was White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre slamming Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville for holding up military promotions. The Alabama senator has blocked hundreds of nominations and promotions over a Pentagon policy that provides aid to members of the military who travel out of state to obtain abortions. Senior congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is here. And Lauren, you just got back from Huntsville, Alabama. You talked to some of the senator's constituents about his standoff. What'd you learn? Yeah, one of the key takeaways is just the fact, Phil, that Huntsville is such a military town. And this is really pitting two core conservative pillars against one another, abortion and the military. And when you talk to voters in the state, they'll tell you they're concerned that this could have a long-term effect, not just on the military, but the economy at large. Well, I'm pro-life and I'm a conservative, but I really don't believe that he should hold up military promotions. In the GOP stronghold of Alabama, Senator Tommy Tuberville's months-long holds on military promotions are testing Republican support back home. Did you vote for Tommy Tuberville? I did. Yeah. Would you vote for him again, you think? Well, you know, uh, it's going to be, I'll have to watch and see what he, he does. Tuberville's opposition to the Pentagon's policy to reimburse travel for reproductive care is popular. His tactics, less so. When you start politicizing how to promote, I think we're we're stepping into uh, the wrong territory. I come from a military family. My dad's retired Marine. My oldest brother's retired Navy. I'm retired Air Force. So uh, we, we, we give ourselves to this country. His holds pit two cornerstones of GOP politics against each other, abortion and the military. In Alabama, abortion is illegal in the state unless the life of the mother is in danger. In Huntsville, the military is the backbone of the economy, and Tuberville's holds are already having an immediate impact at Redstone Arsenal. Someone advised him that this was a good idea, and it is impacting our services, it's impacting our nation, it's, it's impacting Alabama. He needs to step back now and say, I understand the implications, and we need to go forward. And we need to get these people in the right positions because it's a huge domino all the way down. For military families, the impact is personal. I can't figure out what his reasoning would be to, to essentially punish people that have no dog in the fight uh, for his own agenda. I just retired from the Army uh, in March. Uh, I served 20 years. Um, so, yeah, it kind of rings close to home for me. And uncertainty for the top brass trickles down. 
Kwan's brother is proud to wear the uniform, but she says he is facing a stressful delay. He was telling me that he's still in limbo. He doesn't know what he's going to have to do next or where he's going next. And so I could kind of hear in his voice that he would like to know uh, more about if he's able to continue to do the great work that he's doing with the military. Retired Colonel James Henderson is relishing Tuberville's standoff with President Joe Biden. I'm certain that he would not compromise. And nor do I think he should. And some voters are cheering their senator on. It's one way that he can make the voice, his voice known and the voice of the people who are pro-life and that don't want their tax dollars going towards um, the funding of abortion. Tuberville might be under fire in Washington, but he does still have the backing of the state party. In politics, um, everything is a risk. Uh, but, but no, I'm looking at a U.S. senator who wants to do a good job representing his constituents, who sees a flawed policy and is standing against it. Yet with no end in sight, the gamble for the senator is growing. His uh, position to all of us, to Alabama, was uh, I am military. I am one of you. This flies right in the face of that. There's not time. There's not a compromise to me. He needs to just step back and go, okay, Coach, I need, um, I'm the coach. I'm going to do an audible here. I did not realize all the implications that it has on everyone. And by the end of the week, the expectation is the number of holds that Tuberville is affecting now will rise to 275. We also expect that in upcoming weeks, the state party in Alabama is going to vote on a resolution backing their senator and his actions in Washington. The chairman told me he expects that to pass overwhelmingly back. Yeah, when you're talking about a deep red state like Alabama, you can see why he might have the backing to do something this controversial. Lauren, thank you. Well, we are continuing to cover that breaking news out of North Korea. An American man now in North Korean custody after crossing the border into the country. Stand by for more reporting at the top of the hour. This is CNN Breaking News. Well, good Tuesday morning, everyone. We want to get straight to our breaking news. An American man is believed to be in North Korean custody after crossing the border during a tour of the demilitarized zone. That's according to the United Nations Command, which says it's working with the North Korean army to resolve the situation. CNN's Will Ripley is live in Taipei, Taiwan for us. Priscilla Alvarez is over at the White House and Kylie Atwood is at the State Department. So, Will, I want to start with you. We were discussing in the last hour uh, where, how this could have even happened. Is it really all that easy to accidentally wander over onto the North Korean side when you're in this part of the DMZ? Do you remember that moment when President Trump took that kind of spontaneous trip to the demilitarized zone and then Kim Jong-un showed up and the two of them crossed over the the demarcation line and, and President Trump, you know, stepped foot technically into North Korean soil. It was a few footsteps. Um, so it's actually not that difficult to cross if that's in the area where the, where the crossing happened. Now, there are other parts uh, of the demilitarized zone, and we don't exactly know which location this particular group was being shown, but there are woods and there, there are occasionally mines and there are also sniper towers. It could be a much more dangerous situation. But if they were indeed at Panmunjom village, which is where they basically have these buildings that straddle the border, half of the building in the north, half of the building in the south, and if you go 
inside the building, you can see where they had negotiations between the North and the South, and they were sitting on their respective sides uh, many decades ago, uh, at, you know, where they basically signed the armistice that put a pause on the Korean War that's still in effect to this day. T technically, the two Koreas still are, are, are at war. They've never, they've never reached a peace deal. They've just basically stopped the fighting, um, which after several million people died, and basically there was no, uh, no, no, no land gained or lost by either side. The line stayed right where it was, and you had millions of people who died in that war. Uh, a lot of Americans don't even really think about it because they think about World War II. They don't think about the Korean War uh, as much. But the North Koreans certainly think about the Korean War every single day. They have museums dedicated to it. They have their own version of history about uh, they say that America started the war, which, of course, is not accurate, according to pretty much every Western historian, but the North Koreans have a real deep, uh, deep-seated hatred towards the United States because of what they're taught in school, the propaganda that they grow up with. And now this American citizen has put himself uh, into a situation uh, where he is going to be right there and he's going to be in North Korea for uh, perhaps quite a long time because it's very difficult to communicate uh, right now. The North is arguably more isolated than it has ever been. Uh, very little in terms of foreign diplomats on the ground in Pyongyang. No official uh, open lines of communication. There are back channels. Those back channels will be operating, uh, but it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be quick. You know, Kylie, Will makes a, a really interesting point we'll be trying to figure out. And I, I want to caveat this, but this is very early. Our reporters are working their phones. They're trying to get more information. Uh, and we don't know a lot right now. But, Kylie, one area that you do have a ton of expertise on is on covering how the United States operates in situations like this. Much of that is behind the scenes. Very little of it is known that well. And I think one of the questions is, um, do we have any idea who this individual may be? And also, what does the United States do in a situation where there are no diplomatic uh, pipelines open, no contacts that actually exist with the country where a U.S. person has uh, been detained? Yeah, well, I, I think we do need to note that we really don't know much at all about who this American is right now. We don't know if it's a male, if it's a female, if they were just, you know, an American who was going on one of these joint security tours uh, when they were visiting South Korea or if they were a member of the military. We just don't know right now who this person was. And that is a critical question um, because that will influence kind of the conversations that are had between the U.S. and South Korea and then, of course, potentially North Korea to try and secure their release. But to your point about the fact that the United States doesn't have regular diplomatic uh, relations with North Korea, particularly right now in the Biden administration, that makes a situation like this even more complicated at this moment in time, because it's not as if there have been lines open between the two governments so that U.S. officials can pick up and call over to the North Koreans. The Biden administration has repeatedly said that they are open to talks with North Korea. Uh, they are open to talks without pre conditions, essentially saying that North Korea wouldn't have to break down its nuclear program in order to engage in those talks. But we haven't seen any interest from the North Korean side up until this point during the Biden administration. It was very different during the Trump administration. As we all recall, there were two summits between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. And so there were open lines of communication. But when you talk to officials who were in the Trump administration leading those conversations, uh, those lines just aren't open in the way that they used to be. So that makes a moment like this even more complicated, even more challenging, even more delicate. And rest assured that the U.S. is going through their incredibly close ally, South Korea, right now to try and figure out 
what they can do on behalf of the United States to really work on this situation. As Will was saying, this demilitarized area between North Korea and South Korea um, has a lot of different assets to it. You know, I've been to this area. It's an area where you can look over and you can see the North Koreans, but the North Koreans aren't right there in front of the UN command who is in charge of maintaining this area. They are quite a, a far ways away. So it's interesting uh, that according to the UN command that this American crossed over this demarcation line uh, without authorization and then is believed to be in North Korean custody. What that indicates is that the North Koreans were in some way ready for it, potentially, uh, and were looking to potentially detain someone. Of course, we'll learn much more about this you know, in the hours to come. We, we certainly will. I, I believe we have now with us Colonel Cedric Layton, uh, who uh, has some additional perspective on this, uh, because just in the last week, Colonel Layton, North Korea tested an ICBM missile. And typically these tests are designed to both demonstrate their current capabilities, but also to send a message about their posture. W set the table for us. What is the context here of how North Korea uh, is positioned uh, feels about itself as it relates to the United States right now. Yeah, good morning, Abby. I think North Korea feels threatened and uh, they lash out in various ways when they feel either threatened or ignored. And I think we're seeing a, a bit of that uh, right now. We have a, a U.S. nuclear submarine that's uh, docked at Busan, uh, the South Korean port of Busan. That's a, uh, a very unique situation. It hasn't happened in 40 years. You have a situation where uh, you have uh, the possibility of uh, you know North Koreans uh, demonstrating their power. We haven't seen a nuclear test in a long time as well. So with their ICBM launch, which you mentioned, uh, that uh, becomes a, a, you know, a test launch for them, but it also is a demonstration of power. And then uh, this action on the DMZ, that becomes a situation where uh, they are lashing out, trying to pick individuals out of the mix. Uh, they see that, uh, in essence, what, what really amounts to hostage taking is working a bit for the Russians. And they kind of want to emulate that. They've done similar things before. We remember the case of Otto Warmbier uh, that uh, ended tragically with uh, with Otto Warmbier's uh, death, the college student from Ohio. Uh, that kind of thing, uh, you know, hopefully doesn't go that far in this particular case, but uh, it's certainly a danger and certainly a possibility for this American who is now detained by North Koreans. You know, one of the th key things, and we just want to keep reiterating this as this continues to move along, and Kylie said this perfectly, there is a lot we don't know right now about really anything that's going on. What we do know uh, is that according to the United Nations Command on Twitter, a U.S. national has crossed the military demarcation line into North Korea during a joint security area tour. Priscilla, at that on that issue specifically, White House officials uh, are clearly aware of what's going on right now. To the extent we know, what are they doing? How are they operating in this moment? Well, they are also in a fact-gathering phase. They are trying to understand what are the details here, what was the circumstance that this U.S. national may have crossed or had, that we know crossed into North Korea. So in a situation like this, officials are back-channeling. They're trying to get information from the allies they have in the region. As you heard from Will and Kylie, this is complicated because there is no line of communication with North Korea. But what can be done in the region or with the United Nations Command to try to understand how this U.S. national uh, crossed into North Korea and got, was, is now in custody are all questions that 
White House officials have that they're working on getting information on. I have asked the White House for any comment or any co information they can share with us. They haven't provided any yet. But, Phil, let me remind you that this is a White House that cares deeply and has made detained Americans a priority. In fact, just last week, we heard from President Biden about a separate case, an American journalist detained in Russia. But he said this in his response to reporters when asked about that. He said, quote, I'm serious about doing all we can to free Americans who are being illegally held in Russia or anywhere for that matter. So this is top of mind for President Biden and other cases of detained Americans. You can imagine that the White House working furiously around the clock to try to determine what happened here and what is going to be done moving forward. Yeah, and uh, the detained Americans issue, as Colonel Layton was just saying, uh, it builds on itself that when a rogue state like North Korea sees what Russia does, it seems to embolden them in some ways. Will, I want to go back to you on uh, the, the question of where do we go from here? And uh, as Kylie said, South Korea is a key ally, uh, likely to be leaned on by the United States in, in figuring this out. But what about China? What role do you think China will play as they are a close ally of North Korea's? And while they're not necessarily allied with the United States, there is some communication that happens there. There, there is no country with more leverage over North Korea than China. Uh, China is the enforcer of sanctions or the nation that would look the other way if uh, sanctions are not being enforced. The sanctions prevent um, missile components uh, and other and materials that are used either for the North Korean military or the North Korean elite. Uh, but if China kind of, you know, allows those things to go into the country, then the, the life and uh, living standard continues as, as it does for those who, who in Pyongyang need to be kept happy, which is the very small group of North Korean elites. And then, of course, the military has enough uh, components to keep building the missiles that Kim Jong-un uh, is collecting and launching uh, with his 10-year-old daughter alongside Kim Jue, who could someday be the one who uh, is in command of that entire growing arsenal, basically securing the fourth dynasty of the Kim family. Whether she's the successor, whether there's another child, uh, it is essentially going to be the Kims in control for quite some time. And, and Kim Jong-un has a pretty stable relationship right now with the Chinese. You know, he hasn't done that nuclear test, which probably would be something that would cross a line that might uh, aggravate China, because every time the North Korea does something, uh, certainly this was the case back, you know, during the Fire and Fury days, 2017, you know, North Korea would launch missiles, they'd do a nuclear test, and everybody would, you know, look at China and say, hey, why aren't you doing more uh, to, to solve this problem, where China always gives the same response. Both sides need to have a hard look at the situation and to resolve the, re resolve the situation with cool heads prevailing and, you know, not escalating tensions. China doesn't want to see anything break out on the Korean Peninsula, but they also don't want to see, uh, uh, you know, a U.S. allied, uh, you know, presence like South Korea right at their doorstep, right? You know, at least with North Korea there, it's kind of a buffer zone for China. So they have some interest in just letting North Korea continue uh, to uh, survive. And, and, and they, they could, if they wanted to, uh, you know, really pressure North Korea to do something on this American that crossed over the DMZ. But I would not, um, I would not wager much uh, of my own money that that's going to happen, guys. Kylie, to, to that point, the, um, even in kind of the most tense elements of the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China over the course of the last year, uh, which has started to cool a little bit, it, it has seemed, uh, U.S. officials have constantly said, look, if there's one issue we should constantly be talking about, it's about North Korea. There's interest on both sides in terms of North Korea uh, not uh, doing the next nuclear test that I think everybody has long been expecting. 
There has been a shift in terms of U.S. contacts over the course of the last couple of weeks. We had Secretary Yellen go over there. I believe uh, the yeah. president's climate envoy, uh, John Kerry, met with Wang Yi, the top foreign policy official for, uh, for President Xi Jinping yesterday, I believe, uh, if, if my timing is, is correct. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in if you think that that could end up being a helpful uh, line of communication that's been sort of reopened over the course of the last couple of weeks. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as Will was pointing out, the impact, the influence that China has over North Korea can't really be overstated. And when you do have what is becoming more regular contact between the U.S. and Chinese officials, um, that is noteworthy in a situation like this. John Kerry is actually in China right now, um, meeting with his counterparts over there, talking, of course, about climate change. But we should note that John Kerry was the former uh, Secretary of State. He is someone with an incredible diplomatic uh, history. You know, he is someone that um, is probably being alerted to this situation right now and potentially, you know, could play a role. We don't know what that looks like. Uh, but it is noteworthy that he's there that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, traveled uh, to China just last month, and also that the Secretary of Treasury was also in China earlier this month. Um, I think also we should note the timeline here when it comes to Americans being detained in North Korea, uh, just to sort of give people context about how North Korea has used Americans who are wrongfully detained to engage with the U.S. side. Otto Warmbier was released in 2017. There were then three other Americans who were uh, detained in North Korea and released in 2018. And later that year was when we saw the first summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. There was the second summit that following year. So it's very clear that in the past, these Americans have been used as leverage by North Korea to engage with the U.S. side to get something out of the United States that they want. In that situation, it did lead to them uh, getting accolades, getting attention on the world stage, standing by uh, the leader of the free world when President Trump was in office. So that's noteworthy, and I think we should consider that context when we're having this conversation. But uh, clearly on the China front, very important to watch that John Kerry is there right now. It is a very important point. And uh, as you said, back in 2018, the Secretary of State at the time, Mike Pompeo, actually went to Pyongyang and brought back Americans who were detained there in North Korea. Uh, Kylie, uh, Priscilla, Will, and Colonel Layton, thank you all very much. We will have much more on this breaking news out of North Korea. We'll bring you all the latest developments as they come into us. But also, we have to turn now to the scorching temperatures all around the world. And for many, it won't let up anytime soon. We are live in Phoenix, Rome, and Hong Kong on these global heat waves. Next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Across the nation and around the world, blistering heat waves are shattering records on multiple continents. Here in the United States, 65 million Americans are under heat alerts from Florida to California today. Phoenix is set to smash its all-time record for longest hot streak. 19 days above 110 temperatures. The heat hell is worldwide. That's an actual quote from a top climate group in the UK. Extreme heat intensifying across southern Europe, Italy, and surrounding countries being described as a, quote, giant pizza oven. CNN has this covered all around the world, from the U.S. to Europe to Asia. We want to start here at home with Stephanie Elam in Phoenix. 
Good morning, Phil. You are right. We are breaking records here in Phoenix in all the wrong ways. Not only is it that high temperature and that 19th day in a row that we're going to see over 110 degrees here, it's also the low temperatures. At 3 o'clock in the morning local time, it was above 90 degrees, and that is part of the danger here. Hospitals saying they're seeing people come in with burns because surfaces, the ground is so hot. If people get to the point that they're delirious at about 107 degrees, they are falling, making contact, and they're dealing with those burns, really uh, dealing with a lot of the dangers here from heat. For more on this, let's go to Anna Corrin in Hong Kong. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, China is suffering an extreme heat wave with temperatures reaching above 50 degrees Celsius. That's 126 degrees Fahrenheit in the far western region of Xinjiang, setting a new record for the country. It comes as U.S. climate envoy John Kerry is in Beijing holding climate talks with top Chinese officials in the hope the world's two largest emitters of greenhouse gas, accounting for 40 percent of global emissions, can work together to reduce global warming. Also in Asia, the effects of climate change are being felt in South Korea. Korea, where torrential rain has caused flooding and landslides, killing more than 40 people. Even though this is monsoon season, the volume of rain falling has experts sounding the alarm. Now to Barbie Nadeau in Rome. Yeah, you know, it's another grueling day here in the Eternal City, and there that has not stopped the tourists. There are so many tourists defying what the authorities are telling them to do, which is to get out of the sun during the heat of the day. Of course, the Italians and other southern Europeans, where it's also hot, know better. They're inside, they're drinking water, they're not taking much food or alcohol. Uh, but the tourists, on the other hand, are, are enjoying themselves in the heat. For more on this, let's go to Derek Van Dam in Atlanta. Yeah, Barbie, our own heat hell is actually unfolding here in Atlanta and across the southeastern United States. This time it's heat coupled with wildfire smoke, reminiscent of what New York City and the entire eastern seaboard dealt with a couple of weeks ago. This time the smoke traveled over 2,000 miles to get where I'm located now. And what you see directly behind me is extremely unhealthy air and it's set to continue for the next several hours. Uh, choking this city of over six million people in this larger metropolitan of Atlanta with wildfire smoke coupled with heat. The climate crisis here and now, the fingerprints of climate change being felt in the southeastern U.S. Phil, Abby. Derek Van Dam, Stephanie Elam, Anna Corrin, and Barbie Nadeau, thank you all very much. Let's bring in now CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir. Bill, let's pick off right there where, uh, where Derek Van Dam left off. Are we here now? Is this what it feels like to be at the onset of climate change? It, I, I'm afraid to say that seems to be the case. It's not that the planet is going to refreeze anytime soon. A lot of this is baked in after a century of industrialization now. And right now, scientists estimate that every second of every day, our planet absorbs as much heat as 10 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. The oceans have held most of that in our lifetimes right now, about 90% of that, so you don't notice it as much, but now we're seeing these heat blobs all around the world, the ones we just talked about uh, in the southwest uh, there, which have been holding for, for weeks, almost 40 days, with these major uh, warnings as well. And the superlatives, you talk to scientists who, who spend their lives looking at these numbers and seeing records broken by maybe a half a degree, seeing ocean temperatures broken by five degrees, or just gobsmacked by it. Bonkers are some of the quotes they've said. That's the 38 days. 1,500 record high temperatures set just in the United States in the last couple of days. Over 3,500 globally, and about 80 million under heat alerts in 14 states right now.
You know, Bill, as we look across kind of the, the scale of what's happening right now, there are kind of downstream effects here that I think people will be tangibly seeing, including some in their wallets, I think. And most of thing about home, homeowners insurance, right? If you're on a coast, if you've been dealing with hurricanes, if you're dealing with floods, everything is changing right now. How is it actually affecting homeowners insurance? Well, California and Florida are really the canaries in this uh, coal mine, no pun intended. And Farmers Insurance, State Farm, Allstate, the big ones, have essentially pulled out of California, modified there. While in Florida, AAA, Lexington, and Farmers have modified how they cover. They're having insurance crises in a lot of these uh, southern states. Louisiana also dealing with this. Florida may have to pass a hurricane tax, so they have enough of a pool of money to pay for the damage. And we'll... Uh and Bill, so there's this thing that is actually really fascinating to me. It's about white paint. Tell us how that can have an impact on how climate change plays out in some of these major cities. Well, if, you, if you've ever seen pictures of Santorini, Greece, if you've ever been there, all the white buildings on the Greek islands there, that's heat adaption. You know, early settlers, there wasn't much wood and they were living basically in caves and they realized if we cover them in white as a reflective surface, you can bring temperatures way down. And this is basically being scaled up. There's new uh, science on the whitest possible paints you can put on rooftops, parking lots, because uh, Earth has lost so much ice at the poles, the albedo effect, the, the reflection of sunlight, it's being absorbed instead of reflected. Now it's going to have to be man-made in order to, to keep temperatures down. You're going to see a, a future where major cities, most of the rooftops will either be white or have green space growing there. Those are the cities that will be coolest. It's, it's time to study the hottest places around the world, those who have adapted to it in the smartest way, and scale it up fast. I mean, the only actual solution, Bill, is you need to lead a trip with me and Abby to Santorini, Greece. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're going to need right to look now. at this ourselves. It's a, no, it's totally fascinating. Uh, and I, I, I'm fascinated by the solutions people are trying to find and the developments and the evolution. Uh, and Bill, where you're the always one who brings them to us. Thanks, man. My pleasure. All right, a key hearing in Donald Trump's classified documents case is set for today in Florida. The judge telling prosecutors and defense attorneys, be ready to discuss trial dates. And we are, of course, continuing to cover that breaking news out of North Korea. An American man now in custody after crossing the border into North Korea. We'll be right back. Back now to our breaking news. An American man is believed to be in North Korean custody after crossing the border during a tour of the DMZ. That's according to the United Nations Command, which says it's working with the North Korean army to resolve this situation. Joining us now is former CIA North Korea analyst and former White House official Sue Mi Terry and Will Ripley and Colonel Cedric Layton are also back with us as well. So, Sue Mi, uh, you... I believe, have recently been to this area. What is your view of uh, what we could be talking about here? Is this something that could have been accidental? Is this something that could have been intentional, meaning someone intentionally going across that border? Uh, what's your, your feel of it based on the limited information that we have right now? Well, this absolutely could not have been uh, accidental. So I've been to the DMZ, that area, I don't know, a dozen times in my lifetime. I just took a delegation out in January of this year. They are very, you know, you can't even take pictures. You have to be away. You, they, their South Korean soldiers are standing there and saying you cannot. You, it's very restricted. You, you know, they're very careful about it. This is, there's no way this could be accidental. This had to be intentional. Somebody had to just intentionally decide to run across, which is, 
very, very unfortunate because now I'm sure that this entire tour has going to, is going to be shut, shut down or reviewed, uh, but absolutely cannot be accidental. Can, can you elaborate a little bit on the idea of the, the, the tours? I feel like I was kind of peripherally aware they existed, um, but can people just go to the demilitarized zone and take these two? How does this all work? What, what's the uh, universe of people we're talking well, about here? Right. So, you know, you go to Korea, and this is obviously a place of significance, right? I mean, you, you, President Trump uh, was there with Kim Jong-un. Remember the whole TMZ, you know, when President Trump crossed? And this is a, it's a, a place where it symbolized there's war going on still uh, on the Korean Peninsula. So people want to be there, and they, they want to see it. And you can see the North Korean side from the South Korean side. And, and you know, there was even a crash landing on you, the, the South Korean soap opera, the K-drama, that was very famous. So, so, you know, people want to go there. But it, it, you have to plan this in advance. You have to put your, give your name. You have to give your Social Security. You have to go in group. You have to, a you know, month in advance, have to submit, check out, get approved. Then you go. And you, it starts with some sort of... Uh, film to show the history of you know, the Korean War to just that whole area, just history of the DMZ. And then you see a bridge, uh, you see, you know, you go to some, some other, other buildings and then you go to that particular area where you can look into, into the north. Um, so people do this, but this is, again, something that you cannot just wake up and say, I'm just going to go check out the DMZ. You have to plan this in advance um, and get approved. You have and to put in your, you know, send your passport photo, copy, you know, your name, your social security, your birthday, right. and all of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's clearly something that uh, they want to know who is there because this is an incredibly sensitive part of the world. And, and Colonel Layton, look, we were just playing those video uh, reels of, of former President Trump uh, in the DMZ with uh, Kim Jong-un in his administration. I was not far away in South Korea when that was happening. A lot of this uh, antagonism from North Korea is designed to get moments like this. The Biden administration has not engaged in that same way. So is Kim Jong-un trying the same basic tactic here, trying to get attention to potentially get more engagement? I think that might be the case, uh, Abby. And I think it's, you know, it's very interesting, as Sumi was describing, the way you go about getting to uh, we should also note that uh, it, uh, it's, it's part of the orientation for many people who are stationed in South Korea and the U.S. in the U.S. forces uh, Korea. Uh, they get these tours like that. So uh, there are military people that go on these tours. There are civilians that go on these tours, and uh, it becomes a way to get a look at uh, you know a place that you won't see otherwise. Uh, but you know, as far as North Korea's attempts to engage with the United States, uh, they have a very difficult time trying to, in essence, break the code of how to talk to us. And they find that doing things like this, they find that, uh, in essence, the, I'll call it the spoiled child syndrome, you know, where you act out and uh, try to get parents' attention. So kind of similar psychologically to that. They are trying to tell us, uh, hey, we want to talk about something. There is, you know, perhaps an economic reason for them to do so, uh, perhaps other diplomatic reasons uh, where they would like to engage with us. So this is definitely a possibility uh, that the Biden administration should be exploring because it is very important, uh, you know, to see if the North Koreans want to take that path as opposed to the more belligerent path that they've been on recently. Hey, Will, you, you have spent more time inside North Korea than certainly many, if any, reporters that, that I'm aware of to some degree, you know, putting together 
kind of what Sumi was laying out in terms of this, this couldn't be an accident. Something, it, it just, it, it doesn't work like that. You're not just walking six feet uh, to some degree. Your sense of North Korean leadership, how they operate, uh, what are the chances that they would want to deliberately try and almost grab a U.S. person and bring them over? It, it seems uh, like an enormous escalation tactically uh, from their purposes. It, it would not happen. Uh, there is not there's not a single soldier on the North Korean side that would be given an order to grab an American and bring them back to the North. The North Koreans are, are you know, not stupid and they don't want to they don't want to inflame the situation. I mean, they'll inflame the situation by launching ICBMs uh, that they say they're you know, they have to protect their sovereignty, uh, but they're not going to go grabbing American citizens. It's, it's kind of a, in many ways a nuisance for the North Koreans, because now in a country with very scarce and limited resources, they will provide food. They will provide health care. Uh, and when this American is eventually released, uh, he or somebody will get a very large bill, maybe the U.S. government, a very large bill listing the items uh, that North Korea will charge exorbitant prices most likely for because they need cash. I mean, so anytime that they have an opportunity to, you know, to get foreign currency in, they'll they'll jack up the prices. I remember one time we got a five thousand dollar soda, soda bill before we spoke out loud to the little, uh, you know, the little radio that, you know, is listening to your room. And, and then the soda bill miraculously uh, re reduced down to a, a, a reasonable price. You know, the North Koreans, um, they're, they're operators. They know how to survive. They, they know how to get what they need. Um, and, and so now that there is an American in North Korean custody, it does potentially present an opportunity for the Biden administration that, that, that may not have existed before. And that is, and I've talked to diplomats about this, if the Biden administration wants to engage seriously with North Korea, President Biden needs to write a letter to Kim Jong-un. It needs to be a leader-to-leader -leader letter. That's what, they, that's what they got used to with former President Trump, and that's what they want from President Biden. Now, whether the president is willing to do that, I have no idea whatsoever, but that's what I was told, and this is a matter of months ago, but not, not after this incident, but when we were just talking in general about how to revive diplomacy that is so stalled in North Korea, and, and what was said to me is that it has to be leader-to-leader -leader communication. They want a letter from President Biden. Maybe this would be the opportunity for President Biden to write that letter, and maybe it could open up uh, some sliver of communication. Any communication at all would be a good thing. And Sumi, uh, if this is intentional, as you believe that it is, how does that change what the Biden administration does going forward? Does it change how they uh, engage with the North Koreans about returning this individual? So first, I do believe it's intentional. North Koreans did not do this. Uh, you know, when I went there in January, North Koreans are not even there. Like since COVID, they really scaled back. So I believe this was completely on, on this person's intentional decision to leave. Um, I think for the Biden administration, it is true because there's right now there's a lot going on, right? We, they, are, they just started a nuclear consultative group uh, conversations, Americans and South Koreans. We are sending in this nuclear uh, submarine to South Korea, uh, you know, as part of strengthening extended deterrence. But there's been complete impasse between Washington and Seoul. So this opens an opportunity. Uh, we do know that it's not North Koreans who took this uh, person. So, you know, President Biden will reach out uh, to, to get this American back. But there is a, a, a small opening that there, there was not, you know, there wasn't one before, right? It's been years of no communication with North Korea. Uh, and North Koreans were not interested in returning to any kind of talks, any kind of dialogue to talk about denuclearization. 
But now we have another issue that they can talk about. Um, so I do think there's a little bit of an opening, at least to begin the dialogue uh, between Washington and Pyongyang. All right, Sumi Terry, Will Ripley, Cedric Layton, thank you guys very much. This is a fast-moving story. Breaking news again, an American man is believed to be in North Korean custody after crossing the border during a tour at the DMZ. That's according to the United Nations Command. We will continue to bring you updates as the reporters get more information. The Biden administration, uh, kind of across the agencies, is working through collecting information and what they're going to say uh, at some point in the future. Meanwhile, the first hearing in former President Donald Trump's classified documents case set for today. CNN has learned the judge in Florida told prosecutors that, and the defense to come ready to talk about the trial's timeline. Prosecutors say they want it to start in mid-December. The former president's lawyers asking to delay even setting a date at all. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed is in Fort Pierce, Florida, where that hearing will happen uh, in just a few hours. Paula, what are we expecting today? Well, we're not expecting former President Trump to be in attendance, and it's unclear if his co-defendant, Walt Nato, will be here today, but all eyes are going to be on Judge Eileen Cannon. This is her first hearing with lawyers from both sides of this case. She is a Trump appointee, and every decision that she makes going forward could have an impact on the outcome of this case. Now, today's hearing is supposed to be mostly procedural about how classified information will be handled. But she told the parties to come ready to discuss a possible trial date. That's significant because that has been a real sticking point between the two sides. The special counsel says it could be ready to take this case to trial in December. But defense attorneys have said it's too early to even put a date on the calendar. And they're going to try to delay this until after the 2024 election. So any indication that she gives us today of which way she could be leaning in terms of that defense strategy will be incredibly significant. And Paula, lawyers for Jack Teixeira, he's that National Guardsman who was accused of uh, posting this trove of classified documents online. He actually brought up former President Trump in a court filing. What, what did he say about that? So it's not surprising, Abby, that his lawyers are trying this argument. They're saying, look, our client has been charged with mishandling and being reckless with sensitive national security secrets. So is the former president. Why is our client in jail and while the former president is not? But of course, there are some key differences here, right? First of all, the courts have determined uh, him, this young man, to be a flight risk, whereas they have made a different determination with former President Trump, arguably uh, one of the most famous people in the world. There's also exactly what happened to these classified materials, where he allegedly uh, posted them on social media. Former President Trump is charged in a different way with mishandling these. So there are some differences, and it appears to be an argument that is more about sort of getting attention and headlines than something that actually has merit and is going to get their client back on the streets as he awaits trial. Yeah, you almost can't blame them for trying there. Paula Reed, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> And we are continuing to cover that breaking news out of North Korea. An American man now in custody after crossing the border into that country. We will have more on that after the breaking news. Back to our breaking news now. An American man is believed to be in North Korean custody after crossing the border during a tour at the demilitarized zone. The United Nations' command says that he crossed over without authorization in the joint security area. Now, that's where the so-called truce village is. The U.N. command says it was working with North Korea's army to resolve the situation. Kylie Atwood is following the developing story from the State Department. And, and Kylie, former CIA North Korea analyst Sumi Terry just told us uh, a couple of minutes ago that this 
uh, is likely an intentional act by this individual. Still, there's going to have to be discussions to some degree. Do we know how those would actually start, what the process is right now? We don't know how those would start because we don't know what the hotlines between the U.S. and North Korea really are right now. We know that there are ways for the Biden administration to communicate with North Korea. They have said that they have reached out in the past, but we don't believe that there are really active lines of communication. So we don't know exactly, you know, how the North, how the Biden administration would reach out at this time. As we were discussing earlier, however, you know, the U.S. and South Korea are incredibly close allies. So rest assured that the U.S. is in constant contact right now with the South Korean government, who, of course, is on the southern side of this border to try and figure out what the South Korean government can do. And as Sumi Terry was saying, you know, this is uh, likely in her perspective an intentional act on behalf of this American, uh, that doesn't mean that it won't be used as leverage by the North Koreans. If they, you know, have an American who has crossed over this border, you know, potentially aggressively and without authorization, uh, they have someone in their hands that they can use as leverage against the United States. And we will just have to watch and see how they're going to try and use this situation. As you guys have been discussing, uh, this is an incredibly fortified border between the North in South Korea, uh, when you visit this area, it's not like those visitors are looking North Koreans in the eyes. There are North Korean soldiers who are far, far away. You can use binoculars to try and see where they are. Uh, but the fact that this American, according to the UN command, which is in charge of maintaining the stability, maintaining uh, you know, the area, According to them, if they crossed over without any authorization, uh, that appears to be what has prompted this situation right now. And we'll continue to monitor all of these developments. We're still early on in this story uh, as we figure out who exactly this American is who crossed over into North Korea and what the White House and the State Department both are saying about it. Kylie Atwood, thank you for that reporting. And new overnight, Russia retaliates. Ukraine says that it shot down a barrage of cruise missiles and drones that Russian forces unleashed on their southern port city of Odessa. Our CNN team that was there on the ground witnessed Ukrainian air defenses firing up into the sky and a loud explosion that rocked the city. The air assault comes 24 hours after Russia accused Ukraine of attacking its bridge to Crimea with naval drones. Alex Marquardt is live in Odessa, Ukraine, and he joins us now. So, Alex, you are there where these strikes happened. Uh, our crews saw it occur on the ground. Uh, what happened there? Yeah, we were up most of the night witnessing this major attack. Uh, Abby, this was a response by Russia, they said today, uh, to that attack on the Kerch Bridge, which of course connects illegally annexed Crimea to the Russian peninsula. Uh, it was a significant drone and missile attack against southern Ukraine, including against the city of Odessa. It was around 2 a.m. in the morning when it started, just shy of 24 hours after that attack against the bridge, a local military official announcing that the city was under assault, that the air defenses were in combat. We very much saw that for ourselves. Air raid sirens going off, hundreds of red tracer rounds being fired into the sky from those air defenses. We heard the air defenses firing up into the sky and then what appeared to be a drone or something else that was on fire streaking uh, across the sky behind me. We saw that several times. And then we heard that there were cruise missiles called calibers. These are Russian cruise missiles 
fired from the Black Sea. We heard that they were incoming and moments later heard several enormous blasts. I want our viewers to take a listen uh, to one of those. Take a listen. So that was the last in a series of at least four major explosions. Uh, not too clear how far away it was, but you can hear uh, that, car, uh, that, that car alarm going off. Now, this did result in, in some damage, as you might imagine, uh, to the port of Odessa, as well as some other uh, civilian buildings. Luckily, no one was killed. One person was hurt. Russia said that this was not, that the, uh, that they, that Russia pulled out of the grain deal as well uh, yesterday. There, was a, there were two major stories on the same day. But they say that that had nothing to do with the attack on the bridge. Uh, and there was global condemnation for Russia pulling out of that grain deal. And earlier today, we spoke with the uh, administrator of USAID, Samantha Power, who told us that Vladimir Putin is playing Russian, is playing roulette, rather, with the hungriest people in the world and called it deeply disturbing. Here's a little bit more of what she had to say. The whole world needs to raise its voice, particularly the global south, countries in the global south, to say that it's unacceptable to hold hostage the hungriest people in the world uh, because of some power play and aggression carried out by Moscow. So Power told us that she is hoping that global pressure will bring uh, Russia back into this deal. Meanwhile, she announced that the U.S. would be giving another $250 million in aid uh, to support uh, Ukraine's agricultural sector. Now, the, the, the attack that we saw last night, Abby, uh, that was, as I mentioned, according to Russia's Ministry of Defense, in response to the attack on the bridge, but Russia is still saying that they are still considering other ways uh, to respond to that. Abby. All right, Alex Marquardt, live for us in Odessa, where those strikes occurred last night. Thank you. And new details are emerging on the man who's suspected of being behind the Gilgo Beach murders. What investigators found in a walled-off vault in his basement and how his family first reacted to the arrest. That's and, next. And we're continuing to cover the breaking news out of North Korea. An American man now in custody after crossing the border into the country. Stay with us. We'll have more after the break. New information just in. A U.S. official tells CNN the American man who is in custody in North Korea is believed to be a U.S. soldier. He was arrested after crossing the border during a tour at the DMZ. That's according to the United Nations' command, which says that it is working with the North Korean army to resolve this situation. Joining us now on this new information is CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, a former NYPD deputy commissioner, and Cedric Layton is also back with us. Uh, uh, John, hold on for a second. I just do, do want to go to Cedric Layton on this news that this individual we have just learned is uh, believed to be a U.S. soldier What's your reaction to that? Well, Abby, you know, obviously this uh, sounds like a really incredible incident. And if this person uh, crossed the border deliberately uh, and uh, did so without authorization, uh, that becomes a problem. There have been six defectors, U.S. defectors, to North Korea since the end of the Korean War, most of them in the 1960s. Uh, the most recent one was in 1982. Uh, so these kinds of things do happen. I'm not saying this person is a defector, uh, but that's the kind of thing that uh, obviously is going to be going through the minds of uh, our administration officials here in Washington and, of course, uh, the folks on the ground in Korea as well. 
John Miller, as, as we all kind of search for answers right now, behind the scenes, what are U.S. intelligence officials, folks over at DOD, doing to try and figure out what's exactly happening here? So, Bill, a lot of wheels are turning and grinding very quickly. You've got, you know, an emergency meeting going on, one would imagine, at the National Security Council at the White House level, tasking out um, these jobs to get information. So what happens now in the kind of one, two, three version of these steps? First things first is figure out what happened. Did he wander across? Did he run across? Uh, does this appear to be an intentional act? Here you have a member or former member of the U.S. military, a private second class, um, who has crossed over that border. You begin with the videotape. There is uh, a 2.5-mile buffer there. There are sentries on one side and sentries on the other side. Each one mirrors the other. They are watching constantly with binoculars. but. There is a lot of video coverage, so uh, they'll go to the videotape, they'll see what happened, how it occurred. At the same time, the FBI will be going to the home of this former, uh, I mean, this um, uh, military person who crossed over. They'll be looking to talk to families. They'll be looking to talk to friends. Uh, was there any discussion of this beforehand? Is he emotionally disturbed or stable? All of those wheels are turning at once, because you have to figure out um, was this an accident? Highly unlikely, given the structure of that border and its security. Or was this an intentional act? And if so, why? And just to wrap this up, you're also going to have to look at what was his job in the military? Does he have access to sensitive information? Um, what, um, what is the threat assessment there? Yeah, I mean, such an important point. I, this really opens up almost a Pandora's box of possibilities here. And Colonel Layton, as you pointed out, it has been decades since uh, 1982, the last time something like this, if this person is a U.S. soldier, would have happened. How have things changed uh, in terms of U.S.-North Korea uh, relations in that time? How have things in North Korea changed? That's a quite a long time. Yeah, there, there's been some huge changes. In many ways, it's kind of circular. You know, at, at one point, you have very bad relations, and then things thaw, and then you have very bad relations again. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, in the interim years, we had some fairly good contact with the North Koreans, where there'd be uh, regular meetings between U.S. and North Korean uh, military officers, and uh, these kinds of things would have been handled very differently. But now the situation is kind of back to where it was uh, in the 80s. Uh, where there is, in essence, a freeze in these relations, and that uh, is going to complicate uh, the ability to get this person back, uh, and it's going to make it, uh, I think, a bit more difficult uh, to uh, you know to find out in some ways what happened. But uh, John's exactly right. We're going to see, you know, what this person is doing in the military, was doing in the military, what their specialty was, what kind of access they had, uh, and that could, of course, uh, you know, lead to perhaps. Uh, at least some more theories as to what happened here. You know, John, we've only got about 30 seconds left, but how quickly, it, it seems to me, given the amount of surveillance in that area, given the amount uh, of kind of U.S. focus and ally focus in that area, it would be fairly easy to quickly determine what happened here. Am I overstating things? No, Phil, I think you've got that right. That is one of the most watched stretches of land on the planet Earth. And um, if what occurred is obvious and how it occurred, uh, they're going to know that pretty quickly. All right. John Miller, uh, invaluable perspective, as always. Colonel Cedric Layton, 
Likewise, my friend, thank you guys very much. And we are going to continue to cover the breaking news out of North Korea, out of the Korean Peninsula. An American man believed to be a U.S. soldier is now in North Korean custody after crossing the border into the country. Stay with CNN. Our reporters across the world are working this story to find out more information. We'll bring it to you as soon as they have it. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.